One of my notes, and I have no clue what the context is, just says, shut up, Lovecraft. <laughs> We're talking about Necronomicon, the Book of the Dead. everybody, welcome back to 1000 Wives of Weird, uh, the podcast about everything weird, mostly movies. I am Billy Martell, and with me as always is... Brad Hefner. And we're here to discuss a rather bizarrely obscure movie for the amount of recognizable people involved in it. Mm -hmm. A book, a, a movie, I should say, that was a French-American co-production called Necronomicon, Book of the Dead, or as I found it listed most often online for some reason, Necronomicon Book of Dead. Oh. Yeah. It has a couple different titles, and that one is the title that I found used most often, was Necronomicon Book of Dead. Necronomicon Spooky Pages. <laughs> uh, obviously for, well, maybe not obviously if you're not in the know, this is an adaptation of some of the works of the famous horror author H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft. Howard Philip Lovecraft, famous. What, what's a good description of Lovecraft and what kind of a person he was? Um, Lovecraft was a racist. Yeah. Who we both kind of agree was not a great writer. No, he wasn't a great writer and he wasn't uh, a tremendously good person either. No. Uh, in You... People make excuses for him the same way they make excuses for any old author where they say, oh, you know, he was racist because that was the, the environment he grew up with. There's Mark Twain racism. Yeah. Where it's probably the environment that he grew up with. And then there's H.P. Lovecraft racism where it's like, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, back yeah. up. Like, he's... It's not the kind of thing where, like, every once in a while I'm reading an old... Superman comic book, mm -hmm. or an old or or an old Sherlock Holmes story, and there's like a a sudden reference to phrenology being an actual science. Yeah, that's that's just a thing that people believed back then was a science thing. And then there's H.P. Lovecraft, where like almost every single story is about how terrifying it is to be a sensitive white boy in a world full of people who are not sensitive white boys. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, every a lot of xenophobia, mm -hmm. a lot of uh, if you are not from uh, where was he from? Massachusetts, Massachusetts. Yeah, if he was were, from an upper crust family in Massachusetts. If you were from anywhere south of Massachusetts, oh, particularly if you lived on an island, yes, uh, you were the devil. You were the devil. He he uh, he he moved to New York for a certain part of his life. And he's sitting. In a, I wanted to be on Broadway. <laughs> in a weird parallel to the experiences of David Lynch, his very brief time living in a crowded apartment building in a city, he described as one of the most horrifying experiences of his life. A child sneezed at me, <laughs> and I screamed so loud. And he was just so... He particularly did live in a building and in an area that he described as being very ethnically diverse. And he's he's described it in interviews 
uh, or in his own writings at the time. I don't know who would be interviewing him, just but in his own writings at the time. People he... Magazine came by <laughs> all the time. He was not popular, by the way, when he was when he was alive. Most of those guys weren't. Yeah, he was a pulp novelist, and he was friends with another pulp novelist, Robert E. Howard, who people know as the creator of Conan the Barbarian mm-hmm. and other characters like that. And Conan the Bar and, and Robert E. Howard would always joke with him that he needed to put more sex in his stories because Robert E. Howard will always include one definitive moment of sex in all of his stories because that would get him the cover. Yeah. And Lovecraft never did, which meant that Lovecraft never got the cover of any of the magazines they were published in. Vaginas are very scary to me. Yep. He was he was very racist, he was homophobic, he was afraid of sex, he was afraid of women. He was afraid of anything that was not Lovecraft. And he was also much more understandably, much more sympathetically afraid of turning into his parents who were both who both died in mental institutions as a When I was a baby, my mother's nipple stabbed me in the eye. (laughs) So I have not trusted a woman since. I'm surprised that a sequence like that has never been in a Stuart Gordon film with Lovecraft. <laughs> just someone's, some woman's nipple just sprouting a spike and just driving <laughs> into someone's eyeball. Lovecraft, however, despite being such a gross person, is extremely influential on modern horror. Oh, absolutely. If you've read any Stephen King story, if you've read any Neil Gaiman story, if you've read any Alan Moore story, you have read elements of Lovecraft. Laird Barron, Thomas Ligotti, Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much all of modern horror springs from Lovecraft, which makes it frustrating because we both agree that Lovecraft has so many great ideas. So many! I think we both have the same problem with Lovecraft, is one, he cops out so much by going, what do you do, do, uh, Howard? It's too scary for me to talk about! (laughs) I could describe it, but I can't, so I won't. <laughs> and if he, even if he's ever actually forced to describe it, what he actually describes is not that scary. Yeah. Especially by modern standards. Like, I'm sure at the time, the fact that one of his main antagonists in his stories, and it does actually show up in this movie, uh, is a race of fish people. Yeah. Who have existed for since the dawn he of time. He loves his fish people. He loves the fish people. Fish people and tentacles are the scariest things to him. Mm-hmm. So he has a race of fish Aside people. Aside from black people. Aside from black people. But uh, he he keeps coming back to them. But by modern day standards, fish people are such a benign thing yeah. that we have an Oscar award winning movie all about falling in love with and sleeping with fish people. Yeah, Paddington's mom fucks a fish person. Right, exactly. Adopted mother. Adopted mother, that's right, yes. But yeah. <laughs> and also I just I find Lovecraft's prose very dense and not particularly fun to read. It's not. It's not uh, fun to read. And compare that to like Robert E. Howard, for example. Sure. I haven't read a lot of Robert E. Howard, but neither have I. I've read his, none of Robert E. Howard. I've read Solomon Kane's story mm-hmm. and I, I have volume of Conan stories that I started to pick at. But his stuff, it's not like the most breezy read, because that was the style back then. But well, also, you have to remember that pulp novel authors, which is what both of them were, pulp mm-hmm. magazine authors, were paid by the word. Yes. So they would often say way more than they needed to in order to get that money, money, money. Exactly. Robert E. Howard, at least, it was more engaging. Sure. Yeah, I've tried multiple, multiple times getting to Lovecraft, and it just 
doesn't happen unless I force myself to read it. Like I did for when we watched The Color from Out of Space. Yeah. I forced myself to go through that. Yeah, I, I find that the more self-contained his stories are, the better they are. Yeah. The minute you have... Because he, he has a tendency, and this movie reflects that a little bit, to include multiple narrators. Like, there will be a narrator who finds a book written by someone else, and he starts reading the book, and then in the book is a narrator who says he heard a story from someone else who heard a story from someone else. The more you go down those rabbit holes with Lovecraft, the worse the story is going to be for you. Which, I love that kind of structure in other things. Sure. I mean, it's it's not necessarily a horrible structure. If you want to see one weird example of it being done well, it has nothing to do with Lovecraft. It's Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah. Because that, that's like a narrator on a narrator on a narrator on a narrator on a narrator in that work. But um, another example of that, which is sort of closer to Lovecraft, is the. It's either, I believe it's a Polish book, the manuscript found in Sargasso, or something like that's that. That's a very Lovecraft title. And that is, someone finds this manuscript, and in it, people telling stories, and in those stories are stories, and in those stories are stories, mm. and it's a very interwoven thing. Cloud Atlas is another one like that. I've never seen or read Cloud Atlas. Well, the uh, the movie is a little bit more non-linear, but the book starts out... I, I forget exactly how it is, but it's, it's like a, a Marushka doll of a movie. I'm saying that wrong. Uh, Matryoshka. Matryoshka? Yes, a Matryoshka. A Matryoshka doll of Russian a movie. nesting doll. Russian nesting Thank you. It's like a Russian nesting doll of a movie. I'm going to cut right to that. Sure. <laughs> it's like a Russian nesting doll of a movie where you have someone's story begins and then they find a book and they read someone else's story who finds a book and then they read someone else's story. So you get the beginning of one person's story, the beginning, 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 one person's complete story in the middle, mm-hmm. and then the end of, end of, end of, end of, right up until the end. Oh, okay. It's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating way to structure a novel. Yeah. And the movie just kind of threw it away. Because, you know, Wachowskis. Yeah. <laughs> it's, eh, whatever. This is not a movie, a podcast <laughs> about the Wachowskis. But anyway, so Lovecraft has a lot of really great ideas. He has a lot... His horror has been interpreted as uh, coming out of his racism, and uh, it definitely does. Yeah. But more often than not, going going on a surface level, his horror usually involves some kind of unknowable cosmic entity Mm -hmm. from the dawn of time. Basically, his horror is always realizing that as small and afraid as you might think that you are, it can always get worse. Yes. You are always more insignificant than you think you are. There's one story, I forget which it is, where a priest goes up on a mountain to meet his gods, only to find that when he goes up there, he sees that his gods have gods, and their gods have gods, and their gods have gods. See, that sounds awesome, but I know if I were tried to read it, I would hate it. That's exactly... Okay, if you want to really get into Lovecraft, I highly recommend going on Wikipedia and reading plot synopses of his stories, because <laughs> that's how I got into him. And I I cannot read his stories. Like, uh, if, if you really want to read something, I, I uh, The Cats of Uther is a pretty great story. I do kind of recommend the original uh, Herbert West Reanimator book. Th- those are not bad. But overall, 
it's a miserable experience trying yes. to read his work. And I just I recommend going to the Wikipedia articles and reading the plot synopses because they're better written than his stories, and you get uh, just as much of a sense of atmosphere and horror by reading the clinical descriptions of what happens in yeah. the stories as you would by reading the stories. There are people who disagree with us. Oh, yeah. This. Well, we should disclaim that we are probably in the minority. Oh, yeah. There, this there, is a minority opinion. There are some very smart, very literate, very woke people yeah. who completely disagree with us and think, not necessarily that he's not a racist, they all agree on that, Yeah, but they will say that, oh, the atmosphere in his stories, his descriptions are so haunting. What descriptions? What, <laughs> what fucking descriptions? <laughs> He's. They're all allowed their opinion. This is just our opinion that Lovecraft kind of sucks, but the concepts that he's come up with are so fucking cool. And they are. Yeah, and we know that because we've both read Stephen King. Yeah, we've read other people's work, and and those kinds of horror concepts come across so much better in their stuff. Mm-hmm. I I am in particular a really big fan of film adaptations of Lovecraft's work because they're often able to translate his scatterbrained ideas into something more cohesive. Yes. And I especially love the work of Stuart Gordon who did the famous film version of Reanimator mm-hmm. from Beyond. I still need to see From Beyond. It's it's uh it's a gooey uh, crazy film that we might actually want to talk about here sure. cuz Stuart Gordon is a strange man uh <laughs> was a strange man he just passed away recently unfortunately rest in power Stuart gordon rest in power Stuart gordon <laughs> he would absolutely be out there with the the black lives matter protesters right now mm-hmm. if, if he could i know he would well see, oh, dreams of the witch house oh the episode of from, masters of horror from masters of horror castle freak which is an underrated film in my opinion I... Stuart gordon when he made his movies always had like a sidekick uh who's name was Brian Usna and Brian Usna would help him write these films and he was a producer on it and he eventually started directing his own films he directed all of the reanimator sequels okay. he directed a spawn ripoff film called Faust in which the only way to save the world is through father daughter rape and a whole bunch of other films and whereas what what I what I like about Stuart Gordon is he he has no filter when it comes to going to really bizarre, fucked up, horribly dark yeah. and sexual places. This is not a Stuart Gordon movie, by this the way. This is not a Stuart, this is a Brian Usna film. Oh, is it? It is. Well, partially. What he does is he seems he like I was talking about with uh, me and my dick. He just kind of follows his imagination wherever it goes. Yeah. And there's something very free and almost joyful about how fucked up his universes are. Absolutely. Brian Usna is like the flip side of that where he just likes to do gross shit for the sake of being gross <laughs> and there's much less artistry and in fact there's almost a, like a, a regressive quality to the way he does things which I am not a fan of but he so much wants to be Stuart Gordon that I enjoy watching his movies anyway yeah I mean when you study under a master you're going to pick up something <laughs> yes and uh, this is a film that was designed by Brian Usna, as many Lovecraft adaptations made since Stuart Gordon's works have been. He put together the production with the help of a, 
of foreign film producers, as he often does. Usually he makes Spanish co-productions, but this time it was French. And he works together with the director. He directs the wraparound segment for this. This is a, an anthology film. Yes. He directs the wraparound segment and the third segment in the anthology. When you were describing his style, I was like, he must have done the third part. He did do the third part, yes. Regressive politics, third part. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, the first segment is actually directed by Christoph Gans, who was a nobody at the time, but eventually went on to write and direct the first Silent Hill film adaptation. Okay. He's creative. He's not the best, but he... Yeah. He certainly got some pretty great dancers to play them nurses. <laughs> and the second segment is directed by Shizuki Kaniko, a Japanese director who I keep talking about on this podcast as the director of the Gamera trilogy. Oh, was he? And he was also the director of the live-action Japanese Death Note adaptations, which I've heard are quite good, but I have not seen. What a bizarre choice for uh, a very restrained entry to this. Yeah, yeah. So, what you end up getting is, it's it's an anthology horror film, and I know you and I disagree on anthology horror films. I'm quite a fan of them. You've said that you do not. I love them in concept, I just have not seen many good ones. There aren't many good ones. But I, I think you've watched more modern ones, whereas yeah. most of my experience with them come from the the Peter Cushing Hammer Horror era. Yeah. Amicus, that was the company that made them. Amicus made a whole bunch of them back in the 70s, like the original Tales from the Crypt movie adaptation and the House of Terror, Asylum, all these movies. Oh, the House of Trip Blood, that's a great one. Uh, and they're all pretty much the same as this movie in that there's some sort of vague wraparound segment that doesn't make a lot of sense. There are like three or four stories in the film and every one of them just is like a, a story that goes along until it ends in grossness. And that's kind of every anthology horror film that I've seen. Is that what modern anthology horror is? You Yeah, usually there's a wraparound se segment, and there might be one good entry, and the rest are kind of shit. Do they all end in the same, like, Tales from the Crypt gross-out ending that... Not necessarily. Okay. Most of them thinking of the VHS movies. Yeah. And also Tales from the Hood. Like other anthology horror films, it's it's just sort of like really short versions. What makes it the most interesting to me is uh, that it is Lovecraft adaptations. And yeah. because of that, there's a lot of imagination that goes into the special effects and into a lot of the the, the more bizarre aspects of the film. And why I wanted to talk about it on this podcast is that while we are talking about weird films, we're also talking about films that you're unlikely to hear about talked about other places. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through so much shit to find this movie. <laughs> I it's 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 it is available on Amazon, but it's only available as like a Polish DVD. Yes. Uh, that you have to pay through the nose for. So I ended up having to go through like some really shady back alley websites in order to find this DVD. <laughs> and I'm not act and I am still not sure to this day that I bought a legal thing uh, I, I don't know judging by the quality of the case art <laughs> I would say no it looks like someone badly printed off a scan yeah. of the original box art I actually and... cannot read the description of the film on the back of the box I, I do not know what it says and also the case came all smashed which I don't know if the purveyor is responsible for that or if that's something that happened in shipping 
I also ordered it like two months ago. Oh, it's like ordering <laughs> something from Neil Breen. <laughs> That's exactly what it felt like. <laughs> That's exactly what it felt like. I actively do not know if if I made a legal purchase or not. But yeah, I I, I, I bought it online. It came two months later. And uh, I, I watched it, and I was like, this is fabulous. Why don't people talk about this movie too much? So I guess after all of this talk, yes, I personally recommend this movie if you can find it. There is a version of it that is available online, but it is cropped to hell, and you can't see anything. This is not a film that stands up to the greatest of, like, Stuart Gordon... Stuart Gordman, Stuart Gordon's uh, adaptations, or, or or any of the other great adaptations of Lovecraft throughout history, uh, it's not Shape of Water, but I would recommend it if you are a a gore hound, or if you just like the special effects of Tom Savini in general. Yeah, because he was the supervisor on the special effects in this movie, and the special effects are fabulous. What do you think, Brad? I would give it a weak recommend. I don't think the stories they chose really show off what Lovecraft is best known for. Sure. Well, the, tentacles, definitely. There are some tentacles, but it doesn't really capture the cosmic horror aspect. It's all very no. earthly horrors for the most part. Yes. The special effects are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, there is a lot of ooze, there's a lot of goo, there's a lot of... Um, and in particular, the final segment has some very nasty stuff in it. Oh, I love the final segment. Yeah, it's it's great. Mm -hmm. And But that, and just for whatever reason, the movie did not engage me very much. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it was, but just from the jump, I was sort of like, okay. If you're a big fan of the general quality level of Tales from the Dark Side, but with okay. a lot more gore and a lot more ooze and slimy shit. Mm -hmm. Like, if Tales from the Dark Side was the same except it had great, nasty special effects, mm -hmm. that's basically the level of quality you're dealing with, for me at least. I know you've recommended Tales from the Dark Side to me before, or at least certain episodes. There's an episode that we will be covering around Christmas time Okay, that is one of the best things I've ever seen. Okay. But in general, I'm not a huge fan of Tales from the Dark Side. Oh, okay. I didn't but realize that. It's sort of it's it's a fine show. It's very middling. Okay. But this, like the production quality, aside from the special effects, reminded me of it a lot. But yeah, if you, it's definitely worth a watch, especially mm -hmm. if you are like a like we're saying a goo hound. Yeah. If you're a goo man. If you're a goo man. <laughs> if you just love goo in movies, then this is. This is the movie for you. I produce goo sometimes, but <laughs> never for a woman. <laughs> it's only for me and my cat. Do you know what my cat's name is? I really don't want you to talk about your cat on I'm the show. I'm say it. Don't say it. Don't I'm say it. Okay. You're not allowed to say it. <laughs> if you want to really hate a human being, Google the name of H.P. Lovecraft's cat. If you... If you Start searching for H.P. Lovecraft. One of the autofill suggestions is H.P. Lovecraft cat. There you go. There you go. All right. So let's get into... Let's get into it. Necronomicon spooktacular page <laughs> sensation. Uh, yes. So 
the movie opens introducing a character played by Jeffrey Combs. Good old Jeffy Combs. As any adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft produced after Reanimator, it has to have Jeffrey Combs in it yes. somewhere. This is one of only, I think, two times Jeffrey Combs has ever actually played H.P. Lovecraft himself. Oh, he did it another time? Yes, in Scooby-Doo Mystery Incorporated, he played a, a an analog for H.P. Lovecraft, whose name was, I believe, Hatecraft. I do not like the Scooby-Doos. <laughs> Why don't you like Scooby-Doos, Lovecraft? Because a talking dog is an inferior creature. <laughs> I don't think they should vote. I don't think they should own land. I would put a talking dog one step above a human woman. <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> who, who cares what you think, Lovecraft? <laughs> I've been dead one million years. <laughs> Good. Uh, it's, not, it's not long enough, Lovecraft. Anyway, uh, Jeffrey Combs is H.P. Lovecraft, who in this film is in, envisioned as a sort of Indiana Jones sort of figure. He he said he has the hat. He has the the jacket. He has a, he has a jacket. He's yeah. A, um, uh, yeah, and Jeffrey Combs looks quite a bit like H.P. Lovecraft. Like he's yeah, especially from like a three quarters profile. They put a lot of prosthetic makeup on him oh did they they did you didn't notice i i was uh, it's been a while since i've seen jeffrey combs and anything but uh mm -hmm. would you rather when i used to fall asleep to that movie uh <laughs> just put it on cause, like it's a good nap movie um so i'm used to it's been a while since i watched reanimator yeah. so i'm used to the much rounder jeffrey combs right, right in that movie yeah. so i was like did he always look so much like hp lovecraft no, they put a lot of prosthetics, which is funny because I actually thought that the prosthetics was super, were super noticeable and bad. But apparently, you having no idea that there were prosthetics did not notice yeah. them at all. One time, I put on a fake mustache to pretend to be an Italian, <laughs> and I saw myself in the mirror and gave myself a fright. <laughs> I called for my butler, was like, who let this Italian in here? Don't worry, you won't be having a butler for very long. You're going to die penniless. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, uh, so H.P. Lovecraft is there saying that he found out there was a copy of the Necronomicon in America being held by these unexplained monks in this weird library. Were you disappointed that they did not use Miskatonic diversity? Not necessarily, because it would have been much... It seems like it should have been much easier to steal the, the book from Miskatonic University True. than a ancient order of monks in a, in a weird uh, castle. And also, Miskatonic University shows up in nearly every other Lovecraft adaptation. True. So it's not like it's hurting for representation. Gotcha. But he does say that he needs to recover the Necronomicon for the sake of all mankind, which is apparently nonsense, because that's never brought up again. Yeah. He says that the fate of mankind depends on me getting this book. Apparently it doesn't. Because it was not doing anything until he started messing with it. Do you think National Treasure 3 should be Nicolas Cage trying to steal the Necronomicon? I think if it isn't, we've missed out on something really special. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I really want to see that movie now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I want Jeffrey Combs to be in that one as well. Because yeah. he has to be in everything Lovecraft related. And he should play uh, Wilbur Waitley from the... Uh, 
damn it, can never remember the name of that story. I even I even talked about that story back in the Violence Voyager episode. Still can't remember the name of the story. But Wilbur Waitley, uh, and he needs to uh, be holding the Necronomicon and trying to take over the world with it, and Nicolas Cage has to stop him. And it would be Jeffrey Combs and Nicolas Cage overacting at each other for 90 minutes, and it would be flippin' fantastic. Dunwich Horror. That's it, the Dunwich Horror. Yes, he has played Wilbur Waitley once before in a TV movie adaptation of the Dunwich Horror. They've added a lot of makeup to Combs to make him look more like Lovecraft. The film presents the idea that Lovecraft stories are warnings of real dangers in the world, saying that this is something that could happen if we wake up Cthulhu. This is something that could happen if we were to go over to Innsmouth, I guess, or yeah. whatever. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but whatever. No. It's a premise that has been brought up before. My favorite version of this is there is a comic series called Atomic Robo. Never heard of it. It's supposed to be really funny. It's an indie comic. Okay. Where it's this atomic-powered robot who gains sentience and has been alive for oh, thousands of years, hundreds of years. And in one of the stories, he encounters H.P. Lovecraft, who has been telling stories about real horrors, but is also still as much of a racist, homophobic, <laughs> sexist, terrified wiener as he was in real life. Don't call me a wiener. You're a wiener. <laughs> You're a wiener. You're a wiener. You're a wiener with tentacles. That's scary. <laughs> yes, it is. Go write a story about it. Anyway, so it's 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 this great thing where, like, yes, he's telling the truth, but he's also still a bad person. <laughs> yeah. Which I really enjoy. But anyway, Lovecraft manages to steal the key to the chamber where the, the Necronomicon is kept... <laughs> in a sequence that I did not buy at all. Like, no. It's a big, jangly key. It's just a big, jangly key hanging off the belt of one of the monks, and he just literally reaches out and grabs it. And, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> he should have, like, coughed as he was grabbing it so he right. didn't hear the jingle jangle. There's no there's no finesse. There's no artifice. No. He literally reaches out and grabs it like a child grabbing a lollipop. It's, it's so yeah. lame. It was not great. <laughs> We gotta get this story started somehow! <laughs> so then he gets into this chamber where they keep the Necronomicon. It's in a chamber inside of a safe. And when the safe opens, it almost hits Lovecraft in the face. <laughs> and I was really hoping it would. And yeah. this would be like a Lovecraftian slapstick. Like, Oh my god. That would have actually made the Lovecraft segments better for me. To have Lovecraft just constantly... <laughs> like falling prat falling Because... He's, it goes along with like him saying, oh, I need to take this book from the monks because they can't protect it. But it really, like, he's like a huge fucking idiot. It's kind of like this sort of fearless vampire killer's vibe yeah. where he's the worst person to be in a position of authority over this. Like, the book looks really heavy and he goes to pick it up, but it's lighter than he thinks and he bashes himself in the face. <laughs> oh, a wise guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> like a tentacle keeps poking him in the eye. Oh no! And that kind of goes because there is there is actually a sequence later on in this movie, and it's played for horror rather than for laughs. But it could very easily be for laughs, where a monster grabs Lovecraft and just throws a bunch of slime on him. <laughs> and that would have been like just just have it if you put a little bit more slime and made it look more like a green version of the marshmallow fluff lands on lands on the 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 environmental protection agent in Ghostbusters. 
that Walter Peck, that would have been fucking amazing. <laughs> I was thinking more like uh, an Evil Dead 2 sequence where it's just spraying yes! out in gallons on poor oh. Jeffrey Combs. And he's just like trying to stand up and like trying to block <laughs> it with the Necronomicon, but it's too forced when it bashes him in the face again. Again. By the end of it, he just has an imprint of his face in the book. <laughs> oh my god. If you want to see a great Lovecraft adaptation, Evil Dead 2. <laughs> <laughs> Complete with a cosmic horror coming in at the end and turning Ash's hair white. It's a yeah. very Lovecraftian element. Anyway, so he, he pulls a Necronomicon out of uh, this wall safe. He gets surprised because the door slams behind him and drops his key through a grate into Whoops. some running water below. Which is apparently a big problem, but we are never told why. We see some things that happen because of it, but yeah. we don't know why they do happen. I also want to note that Army of Darkness has ruined my perception of what the Necronomicon should look like. So when it yes. doesn't look like, when it doesn't have a face on the cover... I was about to say that, I'm yeah. like, that's not the Necronomicon. Right, like, the, the the Evil Dead movies, going back to them, has such a very distinctive and creative depiction of what the Necronomicon should look like. Because it's supposed to be bound in human flesh. It's bound in human flesh, and it's got the face of a person on the front of it, just to to cartoonishly illustrate to you, this is human flesh. They yeah. actually put the person's face on the cover. It's something that no person actually binding a book in human flesh would probably ever do. To the point where in the remake, disappointingly, they took the human face off of it. Which is so dumb. Which was so dumb. Keep the human face so iconic. They should have, instead of that, they should have gone a step further in the remake and had the eyes still in it. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> I was. I thought you were going to say it should have a wiener. If Brian Usna had been directing it, it would have. <laughs> it fucking would have. But instead, Or this a butt one, on the back. Or a butt on the back, yes. But instead in this film, they go... Oh, there is actually a sequence in that movie Faust I talked about yeah. where they feed... The bad guy feeds a woman a potion that makes her boobs and butt grow so gigantic that she melts and dies. And just is left as a pile of two boobs and two butt cheeks on the floor. In a pile of liquefied human flesh. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so I can't say if that's medically accurate. But it it's, sounds right. It's as medically accurate as Violence Voyager. Wow. <laughs> uh, uh, another Brian using the film, which I have not heard many good things about, is a film called Society. Oh, I want to see that. I've heard that it's it's worth seeing if you're a body horror fan, and I'm not, but we do this podcast, so exactly. I have to watch it anyway. We will probably watch it at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's been on my list for a while. That was his directorial debut. Oh, cool. So that's the kind of shit he gets into. Nice. I can't wait. I'm going <laughs> to move it up the list now. Uh, anyway, so... He he takes the book out of this out of the safe, and like we said, it's not the Necronomicon that you or I are expecting, just as, as cultural sort of metallic. Yeah, it's much more generic of a design, unfortunately. Yeah. It just kind of looks like if I were to go to a store and was like, I need an evil wizard's book, and that was on the shelf, I would be like, sure. You know, I, it's not that creative. It's just sort of it's an just, evil wizard book. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, yeah, it's nothing great. 
The illustrations inside the book, however, look a lot like the illustrations in the Evil Dead book. Yes. Because there's only so many ways you can do scratchy illustrations of disturbing shit. The only problem is uh, the illustrations in the Evil Dead book are a little bit more visceral. They have, like, skulls with guts hanging out of the bottom of the skull and stuff like that. And this one, every time we cut back to Lovecraft and see an image of what he's looking at on the page, he always seems to be on the same page showing some weird abstract butthole. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I I don't know what that's if that's supposed to be like a tentacle monster or something, but it's just an abstract butthole. That's what I would masturbate to. <laughs> an abstract butthole. That's what they found in my possessions when I died. <laughs> well, for a homophobe, you did hang out with a lot of gay people. What? <laughs> and worked with them. What? And left your estate to one of them. What? <laughs> Why did nobody tell me? I don't know, but I think you may have known more about gay people than you thought at the time. I I think you may have been repressed. I think you may be repressed. Is it gay to have sex with another man? Yes. Hmm. <laughs> I think you have some thinking to do about yourself, Lovecraft. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think you're going to do it, though. Anyway, he pulls the Necronomicon out of the wall, and he starts... It Also, okay, here's another thing. This is, this is like, more of a nerdy thing. One of Lovecraft's racist things is that all of these horrors are always connected to someone who's not white. Yes. In Call of Cthulhu, you always know that Cthulhu's followers are there because they see a not-white person. They're like, <gasps> must be a cultist. Mm-hmm. But one of the things is the Necronomicon is an element that occurs in his stories a lot. The book is brought up a lot as as, as being a signifier that, oh, shady shit's going on. Mm-hmm. That guy has a copy of the Necronomicon. Or that guy was looking for the Necronomicon. Which, to be fair, if a person has a book bound in human flesh, yeah. that's a red flag. I don't know if it was bound in human flesh in the original source material or okay. if that was created by Sam Raimi because it was creepier. Uh, but, it, yeah, if it was Bound in Human Flesh, that would be a, a big red flag. Now, um, if you're... The original... When he goes into the backstory of the Necronomicon in his stories, it was written by a character that he describes as the Mad Arab, whose name was... Let me pull it up here. Abdul al-Hazred. Yeah, Abdul al-Hazred. So I'm not going to call him the Mad Arab again, yeah. <laughs> because I don't like that. We're going to call him Abdul. Abdul, so this guy, but was, this guy was a crazy guy, presumably living out in a desert somewhere, writing all this stuff about the history of the old gods and all these spells and all these prophecies into this book. Uh, Lovecraft never established exactly all of what was in the book, because he wanted to keep it as nebulous as every other horror he ever created. So it doesn't seem to me that this guy would be able to, once he wrote down his mad scribblings, to then bind it so well yeah. in this m- nice, shiny metal thing, it seems much more likely that he would bind it in human flesh, or bind it in, like, a tarp, or some, some yeah. shit. Like, it, and I can't imagine that this is a second edition. Like, who would pr- print another edition of the Necronomicon? I don't know. <laughs> uh, Penguin Press. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, golden books. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a scholastic. It's a scholastic original. 
All the pages it's very are, informative. All the pages are cardboard. Yeah. There are finger puppets on certain pages. I You didn't go to public school, and this might That's not true. have even been a thing at the time, but I remember in my Scholastic Book Orders, you yes. could get a Necronomicon. Oh, really? Yeah. You could? Mm-hmm. Uh, I I was I was homeschooled, but we still went to the Scholastic Book Fair. Okay. We did not get Necronomicons. We got Captain Underpants. Gotcha. Which honestly, I do remember using to summon demons a couple of times. Yeah. Yes. Well. Yeah. Oh well. It's okay. Uh, but yeah. So weird, long-nosed Jeffrey Combs reads a Necronomicon, and the film doesn't explain what's going to happen. It just kind of runs into it, leaving you to re to figure. Since all of the stories that he's reading in the book happen in modern day, that all of these stories are somehow prophecies within the Necronomicon. Yeah. Which raises so many questions. It's very confusing. Yeah, because part of the story is that each of the characters in in these stories encounter the Necronomicon itself. Yes. <clears throat> and many of the characters read passages from the Necronomicon in order to enact the spells that they wish to, or, or the scientific experiments that they want to do. So one would think that they would read the parts about themselves in the Necronomicon, and therefore realize that none of their actions turn out well. Hmm. Yeah, you'd think. You would think. Especially since, like... Lovecraft just opens the book, and this is the first page he comes to of yeah. these stories. So apparently they're not even hard to find within the book. But whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, also, this... Uh, I mean, the timeline doesn't fucking make sense at all. Because nothing the first about story involves jumping back to, like, 1600s, 1700s, it's when they were still nebulous. using wooden ships to sail. And puffy shirts. And... Apparently, that Necronomicon was kept hidden until sometime in the 20th century. Yeah. So how does Howard Phillips get his copy? It doesn't fucking make any sense. I mean, he does say in the beginning that there is a copy of the Necronomicon, yeah. so maybe there are multiple copies, which raises even more questions about the binding and how they all are bound the same way. You would think... Again, that it would be more of an Evil Dead, Army of Darkness situation where yeah. they there'd be multiple ones bound in human skin using roughly the same technique, but of course some of them you open up and they stretch your face in a really Looney Tunes way. <laughs> Lovecraft would have loved Army of Darkness, and then we keep in between the stories we keep coming back to Lovecraft, mm -hmm. and he keeps seeing more. He doesn't notice it but more and more doors inside the safe that he got the book out of keep opening. Yeah. This is never explained. It never goes anywhere. Well, it goes somewhere, but you don't know where. Yeah. And it's... And they reveal symbols and... Yeah. Yeah. It And the symbols all look like the symbols you see on the Stargate in Stargate. Like, yes. It, it, they don't mean anything. No. They're just symbols. But anyway... Let's get into the the actual meat of the movie, which is the actual stories. I also found it dumb that oh. <laughs> Lovecraft was like, "Well, I just stole an evil book. Guess I'll sit down and write some tales." Well, as he as he points out later in the movie, he dropped the key, so he can't get out. <laughs> so he's gonna... so he stole he he got the book, but now he's stuck inside this chamber, as far <laughs> as he knows, forever. So he might as well sit down and read the damn thing. Yeah, he's very casual like that. Yeah, he does like, not care that he's definitely going to be caught by the monks 
Someone will get me out eventually. It'd be funnier if he just like had to talk his way out and be like, I tripped, and here I am. <laughs> oh, also, if we're to assume that the stories in this book are accurate prophecies, mm-hmm. I, I, I did write this note that said, The Necronomicon is now less of a book of spells and prophecy, because prophecies are usually a little bit more vague than that, because, yeah. you know actual prophecies that real people have made in real life are usually pretty vague. Yeah. And more like the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter from the Good Omens book. But anyway, so the first story is called The Drowned, which is basically an entirely original tale. The only element from Lovecraft that it takes are a few monsters kind of resemble monsters from Lovecraft. Yeah. And the main character's name is the same name as the main character in the story Rats in the Walls. Yes. But that's it. Mm-hmm. Everything else is completely different. Uh, so, it's essentially Lovecraft fan fiction. Which is another thing that like tripped me up about this movie is... Not only were they not <clears throat> adapting the most representative of what makes Lovecraft, Lovecraft so unique mm-hmm. and memorable... But they don't seem to be taking a lot from the stories either. Yeah. Because I, this one I read on Wikipedia was what you just said... Yeah, and it seems like the third one is not very similar to the story no, at all. Either. Really not, and I I don't know why on Wikipedia they call this uh, an adaptation of Rats in the Walls, yeah. and they call the third one an adaptation of Whispers in the Darkness, and neither story have virtually anything to do with each other. Yeah, the only thing uh, is that. This one involves the character inheriting a house from a relative, which is how Rats and Walls begins. Mm -hmm. And the third one involves aliens and brains being taken from one place and put into another. Yeah. And that's literally... that's I've just explained the similarities. That's it. Uh, So, I do have a question for you, though. Because you raised the point that this film does not... does not represent the more cosmic elements of Lovecraft. Mm Mm-hmm. As much as you'd like. Going back in my mind over the Lovecraft adaptations made by Brian Usna and especially Stuart Gordon, I'm realizing that not many of them do. Very true. Very true. So, so, like, again, Reanimator is one of his most earthbound stories. It's probably the Lovecraft story that the most could have been written by anyone. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's, it's even, like, people call it a takeoff on Frankenstein. And Stuart Gordon made the film because he realized there were plenty of Dracula movies, plenty of vampire movies, plenty of werewolf movies, but not many Frankenstein movies. So it was like, is there any way to make a Frankenstein movie without adapting Frankenstein? So he made Reanimator. Um, Are there any movies that you can think of that do sort of dip into that, even if they're not adaptations of Lovecraft especially? Because like we were just talking, Evil Dead is not an adaptation of Lovecraft. We're no. joking about that, but it feel, but it does take elements from his universe and use them to for their own wackier purposes. In the Mouth of Madness is probably the best example I can think of off the top of my head. The John Carpenter film, yes, which is uh, both a tribute to Lovecraft and to Stephen King. Yes, yeah, uh, which I still need to show you at some point. I really want to see that. It's movie. it's yeah. fantastic. I've seen the first two par- halves. The first two parts of John Carpenter's uh, Apocalypse Trilogy, as he calls it, the thing is very Lovecraftian. 
and Prince of Darkness is also Lovecraftian. It's just bad. Yeah, it's just bad. It's, it's just a bad movie. The Color Out of Space, while we had problems with that, mm-hmm. is goes in that cosmic direction. Okay. What about Annihilation? Yeah, Annihilation is sort of Lovecraftian with just sort of the mystery and the cosmicness of it, the extraterrestrial aspect of it. That... When I was watching that, I wasn't thinking about Lovecraft, though. Sure. But that's still a fantastic movie. It is a good movie. I Especially the... Maybe it's because I also read the book. Yeah, I haven't the, read the book, but I knew about the color out of space when I was watching it, yeah. and it felt like an adaptation of that to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's... I can, I can see it, mm-hmm. but it's more... I don't know, just sort of harder sci-fi with... Sure. A whimsical, more artistic bent to it. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I do see what you're saying, but it was it's just interesting to me to realize that not a lot of Lovecraft's more cosmic stuff does get adapted. In fact, when I was looking for other Lovecraft adaptations, the only adaptations of his cosmic work are fan-produced material. Like I was able to find one of he does a series of stories featuring his long-running main character, Randolph Carter, who is only in two movies based on him, Unnameable 1 and Unnameable 2, which were also super hard to find. There are some fan movies out there where he adapts some of the stories which Randolph Carter is more known for, where he, un- unlike Unnameable, where Randolph Carter goes travels through the dream dimension. So I guess that makes Nightmare on Elm Street a Lovecraft adaptation too, maybe? I don't know. But there's there's a whole series of stories where Randolph Carter goes through the dream dimensions and travels through other alien cosmos with using his uh, astral form, essentially, oh, in his dreams. Oh, that kind of awesome. Uh, it's, um, it's Lovecraft, so it isn't, but, like, <laughs> the, the ideas at play are. Yeah. And I would love to see someone really creative in the film language take that on. That'd the, be really nice. The film... Uh, adaptation that I saw was a fan production like I said that was essentially just they drew a graphic novel and they voiced it and then like just kind of like moved the images around Mm -hmm. it was a good uh, heartfelt attempt by fans but it was not the best obviously it was not the best thing you've ever seen but yeah um, so I guess what I'm trying to say in this weird aside is someone let uh, poor poor uh Guillermo del Toro finally make his At the Mountains of Madness adaptation. Yes. Because god damn it he deserves it. He does. <laughs> just just make if 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 Guillermo del Toro tells you he wants to make a movie, just let him make the movie. Give him the money. Let him make that movie. It's almost always good. We would have gotten a better Hellboy movie. We would have gotten a better Hellboy 3. We would have gotten a better Hobbit movie. We would have gotten Mountains of Madness by now. Just just give him what he wants. Yeah. <laughs> Just give give him what he wants. Give Willie the Bull whatever he wants. Who's Willie the Bull? Guillermo del Toro. Is William the Bull. Oh, is that his anglicized name? That's what I'm assuming. Uh, oh, Guillermo yeah. is William. Del Toro. Toro is Bull. William the Bull. Oh my God. Okay. I don't know if Del means of or the. I I don't know either. But that, I've n- I've never put that together before. That's interesting. William the Bull, or William of Bull. I hope he's William the Bull. William of Bull just seems like he's full of shit. Yeah. <laughs> now imagine Guillermo del Toro is like a luchador. 
and he's Willie the Bull. And he's like a minotaur. And his tag team partner is Ron Perlman, just dressed like, dressed sort of like the Beast from Beauty and Beast back when he was on that show. Yes. And he just always, he just, he never wrestles. He just, he starts out the match, immediately tags in Ron Perlman and directs him from the sidelines. <laughs> That'd be great. But anyway, okay, so, like I said, all of these stories follow the same sort of Roger Corman formula of, we have a setup, and then we go into, we get to the end, and then suddenly something really gross happens, and then we're done. Uh, so the first story is called The Drowned, and it features a guy coming to his family estate, which is apparently a hotel, even though it's clearly just a mansion. Yeah. It's not the first, not the last story in this movie that will make that mistake. Yes. And he comes into this mansion hotel and is told that they couldn't find him because his name is spelled a little bit differently. And he's taken over the house and they tell him that there was like some sort of really bad history in the house. He has recently lost his wife in a car accident that he blames himself for. Because he was driving and apparently wasn't paying attention or something like that. <laughs> just drove off the fucking road. Just drove off the fucking just cliff. Just drove off a fucking cliff into the ocean. Uh, this guy's name is Edward De La Poor, Or De La Poor. De La Poor. De La Poor. Uh, his middle name is... Uh, and uh, so he's feeling guilty about this. And he finds a note written by his ancestor who the initial tragedy happened to, whose name was Jethro. That's right. <laughs> Jeth- it's a Beverly Hillbillies crossover. His ancestor is Jethro Bodine. <laughs> and he warns him about the the supply of moonshine he has in yeah. the cellar and not to light any matches around it. But no, he he, he tells him... And- Granny, we got an octopus monster <laughs> in the cement pond! <laughs> Oh, Junior! <laughs> Jad! The the crossover between... Jad Cthulhu's Awakening! The crossover between the Beverly Hillbillies and the Adams Family that we always wanted but never got. <laughs> also, we always wanted that. Always wanted that. I will say, I just... As another side note, I just got finished reading League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's... Um, Black Dossier? Black Dossier. And in that book, there is a crossover between Lovecraft and Jeeves and Worcester. Oh, great. Which might be the best thing I've ever read. That would... I guess I need to dig out my copy of Black Dossier because I finally read some Jeeves and Worcester yes. a few years back, so... It's it's pretty great. I've never read Jeeves and Worcester, but I imagine that it's very close stylistically to the original because Alan Moore likes to do that. Yeah. And oh my god, it's tremendous. Uh, and it actually is... Uh, specifically a crossover with the story that was adapted into the third segment of this very movie. Oh, okay. Complete with one of his friends gets his brain taken out, and they're like, will this change his behavior at all? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) That is very Woodhouse-y and humor. (laughs) But anyway, so... The letter from Jethro that he reads actually starts with the opening lines of one of Lovecraft's first ever stories, Dagon. Mm-hmm. Uh, saying that he's under, he's writing these words under appreciable mental strain. As at, as soon as the letter is finished being written, he will be dead, and he will throw himself from a high window. I thought that was a really cool reference. Yeah. And just like in Dagon, it cuts to Jethro, who's played by Richard Lynch, who 
most people will recognize because he's the villain in every B-movie you've ever seen. Mostly movies involving the words Puppet Master (laughs) or Chuck Norris. I've never seen... The only Chuck Norris movie I've seen front to back is Invasion USA. Okay. And I've never seen a Puppet Master. Okay. Well, he's at least in... I think it was Puppet Master 3... He was the villain of that one. I don't. That's the one I really remember him for. But he's in a ton of movies. Okay. And it's they're mostly films made by Full Moon Entertainment. But yeah, he's in he's in so many things. I recognize his face anywhere. He's not a terrible actor. He's just um, he's definitely a B movie villain actor. Yeah. And he, he found his niche. He found that niche. And uh, they're in a sea wreck. He wakes up surrounded by doctors to find that while they are keeping him alive in one room of the hotel they're holding a funeral for his wife and kid in the other room (laughs) right next door convenient and then uh, taking his cue from Bram Stoker's Dracula he runs up and throws the bible into the ocean announcing that no he throws it into the fire oh that's right throwing it into the fire and everybody is very disturbed by these actions everyone's in a hubbub and like why does nobody stop this old man who is (laughs) Who is like hobbling? It takes him like five minutes, and everyone's going like, "No, no!" And it's just like they he just can let barely fucking move. Right? He's he's given he's giving this very King Lear esque performance of yeah. like, oh, "I can barely move, but I defy you, stars." I know that's Romeo and Juliet. I whatever. It's a very big performance when he sees his <laughs> family drown. He's like, "Why?" Oh my god! He's 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 thrown it to the fences. And uh, yeah, he throws the Bible into the into the fire, and he declares war on God for taking <laughs> away his loved ones. Any God who takes away from me what I love most is my enemy. Which is a very Cormac <laughs> McCarthy line. Also, his family, best looking drowned people I've ever seen. <laughs> Have you seen a lot of drowned people? I mean. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't steal your thunder like that. It's okay. <laughs> it's it's from what I know of drowned people. These people okay. are in pristine condition, right? Maybe they get. I guess they weren't down the water for too long, but Who they knows? look like they just had a spa day. <laughs> they definitely look better than Richard's wife when she shows up later. Yes, uh, she looks horrible. What a god! Get do something with your hair, girl. <laughs> Those salt water treatments are not working for you. But anyway, so... which is I, I, I reference Bram Stoker's Dracula because it's one of my favorite scenes in any horror movie is in Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula where Gary Oldman, because his wife died while he was away uh, in the war... in the crus- in, Not even in the Crusades, in the wars, uh, he comes back and gets so mad he runs into a church and stabs a cross... <laughs> And the cross starts bleeding. Oh. And he drinks the blood, saying the blood is a life, which is a Bible verse. And uh, that's how he becomes a vampire. (laughs) Now again. That movie's so stupid. (laughs) I'm not a doctor. (laughs) Or a theologian. I don't know how medically accurate that is. But that sounds right. I think you can also catch vampirism from toilet seats. From toilet seats? Yeah. Okay. We need to we need to make a list of uh, Brad Hefner's totally medically accurate things sure. in movies. Yeah. There's yeah. I 
Again, not a doctor, but I have cut people. <laughs> He's gone to the school of hard knocks. Yep. And it is not an accredited university. <laughs> still, still more uh, worth your. It's still, the degree is still worth more than the degree from Trump University. True. After Jethro scares everyone out of his house. He's sitting there with his wife and child's bodies on a slab, in, on two slabs in front of him. Just sitting there. Yeah, just, just looking chilling. at him. And then a pirate fish man Who is shows up. probably my favorite monster in the whole movie. Oh, God, yes. Looks incredible. He looks so good. I love a good fish man. Yeah. Uh, and so, going to Lovecraft source material, although this is not made clear at all, we can probably assume that this is one of the deep ones... From stories like The Shadow over Innsmouth or Dagon, who are this race of fish people that have existed since before man. They interbreed with humanity sometimes in exchange for riches. Uh, we are just the prostitutes of fish people. Um, they're essentially the Silurians from Doctor Who, but much less sympathetic. Uh, and they worship uh, this gigantic sea god named Dagon which is based on Lovecraft hearing the name Dagon somewhere, thinking it sounded like a fish, and not doing any research into realizing that the god Dagon is not a fish god at all. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's something else. I don't. Re I think it was a desert-related god, so hmm. it wouldn't have been related to water at all. But uh, There are water in deserts! <laughs> <laughs> Open up a cactus, there's exactly. water! Exactly! Uh <laughs> I heard the name at summer camp. <laughs> I was not attending. I was just in the bushes like a rascal. So he, the 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 fish guy shows up, apparently just to hand the Necronomicon to Jethro. Yeah. Uh, I like, heard you can use this, bro. <laughs> Peace <laughs> out. He's also voiced by Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah. <laughs> heard you can use this, brother. Snap into the Book of the Dead. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cream of the Necronomicon. <laughs> the strange eons always rise to the top. The deep ones are coming for you. Yeah. So he opens the Necronomicon, which is written in English. <laughs> now I'm imagining like 90s wrestling, but it's all like Lovecraft. Cthulhu mania is going to run wild on you, brother. <laughs> gonna have to reanimate your career after this the iron so i'm gonna kill your whole family the iron sheik is the mad arab i ride you into my book and make you humble <laughs> <laughs> the undertaker needs to be kept in a very certain temperature or else he melts <laughs> and john cena i know that's not 90s but Whatever. john cena instead of you can't see me you can't conceive me <laughs> All who look on John Cena lose their <laughs> minds. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, Lovecraft is almost as racist as, as uh, Vince McMahon. <laughs> anyway, so, so the Necronomicon is written in English, mm -hmm. which, of course, written by an Arabic guy, so yeah. of course it would be written in English. I mean, it also doesn't make sense that it's written in ancient Sumerian as it is in the Evil Dead movies either, but yeah. who cares? Anyway, Jethro is shown the Necronomicon, and it's 
he's got a page that features a resurrection spell to use on his family. The resurrection spell is a chant featuring two of the most famous quotes from the book in the original Lovecraft stories, one of which makes sense because it's talking about the death of death. Mm -hmm. The other one doesn't make sense because it's talking about Cthulhu, who's just a monster. And he says Cthulhu weird. How does he say it? I can't remember, but I was... uh... It's something like I don't even remember. I shouldn't have brought it up. That's okay. It's... I've heard every pronunciation. I don't. I still to this day don't know what the how you're supposed to pronounce it. I just know that's debated topic. I know some people are like Cthulhu, or something like yeah. that. I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I don't even know if I spelled it right in my notes. It's pronounced Spaniard. Anyway, so he uses his this Cthulhu spell, which also another thing, in order to do the spell, he he. Cut some blood, mm-hmm. do some blood. He's doing this chant, and he makes a circle on the floor with the Stargate runes and a devil star. Yeah, a, a, a satanic worship star in the middle. The Lovecraft monsters are not satanic. No, they're not supposed to be satanic. But they needed a shorthand to to let people know that this is an evil ritual. This is an evil ritual. Although doing some research, I found out Lovecraftian monsters showed up in the later seasons of the famous gothic soap opera Dark Dark Shadows. Shadows. They were called Leviathans, and in the end, when the writers couldn't think of a way to get out of having Lovecraftian monsters in their scripts, the way that they defeated them is that they reveal, towards the end of the story, that the Lovecraftian monsters are just more servants of the devil. Oh, okay. So maybe that's... What's going on here? <laughs> they they didn't read any Lovecraft. They just watched Dark Shadows. They just watched Dark Shadows, and we're like, this is, they're they're all demons. They watched Dark Shadows, and they said, "Man, I hope someone adapts this with the kid from Twenty One Jump Street." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jesus Christ, Tim Burton! And uh, also uh, another side note, just because I like pointing this stuff out. The Necronomicon was also used to raise a child from the dead from the dead by Mrs. Voorhees from the Friday the thirteenth movies. Oh, was it? Which is why, according to Fred, the Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash comics, which is why Jason keeps coming back, because he's actually possessed by the spirit of the Necronomicon. Or Makes sense like to me. Sure. Of course there's also another comic where it's revealed he's keeps coming back because of an ancient Native American curse. But they could both True. I don't see how they're mutually exclusive. I don't. I mean, and in, then in, in there's another movie where he's possessed by an alien worm thing. So who who gives a shit? A yerk? Uh, yes, a yerk from the Animorphs. <laughs> Although that movie actually has the Necronomicon in it, <laughs> and the only way to kill Jason is apparently to be related to him and kill him with the dagger from Evil Dead Two. So okay, again, fuck if I know. Uh, but yes, these sound like great comics. <laughs> well, that that was a movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, the other two were comics. That one was a an actual movie that came out, <laughs> directed by the director of the first one. Okay, or actually written by him, but whatever. Um. So yeah, the ritual works and brings his wife and child back to life, and there's a jackhammer outside. Yeah, let's pause. Let's pause. So. As we're saying, Jethro is is bringing his family back to life with his spells, uh, and it becomes very quickly, very clearly becomes a pet cemetery situation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes dead is better. 
uh, where he brings these people to life is 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 uh, wife and child, but they immediately have green glowing eyes and they have big squids coming out of their faces. Yep. And uh, he's now very upset. We don't see how that altercation ends because it just fades to him standing on his balcony saying, "I'm leaving." the Necronomicon under the protection of my beloved, and then throwing myself to my death uh, on the rocks below. Hugs and kisses, Jethro. (laughs) Exactly. So, now, this turns out to be a riddle to where he left the Necronomicon, but the way that it's just faded over, it seems like, oh, I did a bad thing by bringing you guys back. Do you mind watching the Necronomicon (laughs) while I throw myself over the edge? Like, he didn't actually leave his squid family to guard the Necronomicon. No. But it really sounds like that in that scene. So, much like Pet Cemetery again, Edward reading the story, finding out about the magic thing that brings families back to life, apparently did not pay attention to the second part of the story. (laughs) And was just like, bringing family back to life? What? What? (laughs) Sounds great. I'm interested. Tell me more. So he finds out, oh, his wife is guarding it. It's hidden behind the portrait of his wife. He grabs the Necronomicon, which is covered in worms. Yeah. Why are there worms on the third floor of a castle? Because you use worms to catch fish. <laughs> and <laughs> fish people. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure where... <laughs> where you were going with that. <laughs> okay, let me explain again. Okay. You use worms to catch fish. Right. Fish people. He he finds the Necronomicon. He reads... He performs the same ritual. Using then, the same uh, Satan circle. Same Satan circle, which is still there. It's still been, there. It's just been covered by a rug. <laughs> <laughs> this is unsightly. We need to do something about this. Uh, and then he just goes and takes a nap. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, nothing happens, so he just goes to take, takes a nap. It takes a lot of work to summon people back from the dead. You get tuckered out. The blood loss makes you sleepy. Yeah, he should have had some sugar cookies. Uh, anyway, so, now, obviously, it took a while. When Jethro did his spell, the, the, the cadavers were right there. Yeah. But Richard, we don't know where his car accident took place. No. Could have taken place on the street leading up to the hotel that very day. We don't know. <laughs> it's very blasé. <laughs> also, not like soaking wet. <laughs> or it could have been in the Audubon in Germany. We don't know. Yeah. We, all we know is he was from Europe, and now he doesn't have a wife. But the wife not only does come back to life, but she finds him at the hotel from wherever she was buried or, yep. or left. Uh, she is also very waterlogged. Which I like that better than the very clean bodies of Jethro's family. Yes. That effect did not work as well for me because it's like, this is the octopus mouth, okay, but it's just like regular people with an octopus mouth. Yeah. That doesn't do a lot And glowing me. green eyes. And glowing green eyes. It's a little hokey. Yes. A little... It's a little um, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah. But this, uh, yeah, she comes in, she's... Very pale, very naked. Yes. Um, and her skin has a sort of like spongy, wet quality mm-hmm. to it. Uh, she's got she's basically got the worst case of of, of prune fingers mm-hmm. over her entire body, and he doesn't notice anything weird about that. <laughs> well, we barely get a glimpse of the woman. Maybe she always looked like that. 
he just immediately starts apologizing to her and crying. And it is a very emotional moment for him, yeah. so we can forgive a little bit of lapse of judgment. She comes right over to him and almost immediately gets between his legs. Did you also think that she was going to blow him with her octopus mouth? I did. I thought, again, this is this part was not directed by Brian Usna. This was directed by the Silent Hill guy. But being a Brian Usna production of any sort, I do kind of expect at some point sex to get involved and for yeah. it to be unreasonably kinky. <laughs> Just unreasonably kinky. <laughs> And when the blowjob did not happen, yeah, I immediately just thought John Waters would have gone there. Oh yeah, John and Stuart Gordon would have gone there. Yeah, Stuart Gordon would have went all up in there. But it made me really want a John Waters Lovecraft adaptation. Oh my God, yes. Where it's it's unfortunate that Divine has passed away. Yes, because uh, for a variety of reasons. Absolutely. Really. But I just picture her, or actually him, he didn't identify as a woman. He didn't? Okay. No, she, he was not a trans woman, he was just a drag queen. He's just a drag, that's um, fine. But uh, Divine is Cthulhu. Oh my god. Or even just Divine is like uh, <laughs> Randolph Carter or something. Just being oh my god. shitty and just being like, where's the Necronomicon? <laughs> I asked for the Necronomicon for Christmas. I know we're going to have to cover John Waters at some point. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm kind of uh, intimidated we by We will that. not start with Pink Flamingos. Oh, thank God. We'll probably do Female <laughs> Trouble first. Okay. We're going we're gonna to ease in. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, and Female <laughs> Trouble is not one of his more disgusting ones. Okay. But it's super offensive. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is the one that opens with, like, rats fucking? And it has his name over that. Rats fucking in the credits. I might not have seen that one. I was watching a an interview with him, and I, I looked it up afterwards to find it. Uh, they they were trying to do it as a practical effect, so they had two rats, yeah, and they were trying to get the two rats to fuck, and they had an animal trainer there to make sure that they were not being abusive to the rats and just naturally getting yeah. them to do what nat rats would do, but they were trying to get them. And John Waters was getting so desperate, they couldn't get these rats to fuck. So he started dirty talking to the rats on set. <laughs> and he was behind the set, like, saying, Oh, you dirty rat. You, oh, you sexy fucking rat. Like, you know, to it, like, yeah. dirty talking probably much better than I am because he's John yeah. Waters. But, like, he then comes up from the set and realizes the animal trainer brought this kid to work that day. Oh. <laughs> I've never seen a John Waters movie, but he is delightful in interviews. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Yes. I wish I wish he was still producing films. And he is everything that Lovecraft would despise. Yes. So absolutely throw him into a Lovecraft adaptation. <laughs> I think more people on the fringes of society, more minorities need to be involved in Lovecraft. Absolutely. There's already a lot of Lovecraft adaptations that replace the male protagonist with female. That would already piss Lovecraft off, yeah. and I love it. There's a movie called Cthulhu in which it's an adaptation of Shadow over Innsmouth, but not only are they mad because he's not, because not only are they trying to attract their, uh, the, the, the ancestor, the descendant of their family to have sex with more fish people, but another in, inhibitor to that is that the guy who visits the town is gay. Oh, wow. And so he doesn't want to. See, the pressure to procreate takes on a different meaning there. <laughs> Gay people notoriously hate having sex with fish people. Anyway, so this woman goes down between the man's legs, but then it turns out, oh no, she's an octopus lady! Uh-oh. 
And then in probably my favorite moment of this segment, aside from the fish pirate, which was a great moment, yeah, uh, he pushes her away and you find out not only is she not really alive, she's actually more of a finger puppet on a tentacle that's like implanted into her back yeah. and is jerking her around like a puppet uh, from this much bigger fish monster, which I can only assume to be Dagon. I don't know why he's fucking with this guy's life in particular, but... What else does he have to do? Uh, according to Stuart Gordon's Dagon, fuck a lot of women. Well... But anyway, he's he's got a, he's got the lady as a puppet, and when he brushes her hair back, her eyes are not glowing, they are hollow, and a lot of tiny little tentacles come out of the eye holes. And that was a very disturbing sight for me. That was probably one of the only thing moments in the film that disturbed me most of the time i was more going oh that's so <laughs> gnarly man but like that moment with the tentacles coming out of the eye sockets i was like oh i think another problem for me is watching movies for this podcast i have to be a little bit more critical than i would be otherwise like in thinking if we had just watched this together it's yeah. like hey i found this awesome movie let's watch it mm-hmm. i probably would have loved it a lot more and to be fair, yeah, when I first watched this, I had no intention of bringing it to the podcast. I watched it because I wanted to watch it. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this is so bizarre and over the top. Let's, and it took me so long to find it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So maybe I need to bring less fun movies to this. Well, no, that's, <laughs> you bring whatever you want. I yeah. just have to also like separate. I have a big problem with my perception of movies. Okay. Versus what they the movie is. Sure. Where I'm expecting one thing and the movie is another thing, and that's not the fault of the movie. That's a fault on uh, my expectations. Okay. Sure. Uh, what did you expect this movie to be? I don't know. <laughs> uh, like I said, a more cosmic thing. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then it becomes full-on Evil Dead action movie from mm-hmm. here on in. Um where uh, there, there's these amazing special effects happening. Dagon is this giant cycloptian meatball mouth monster with tentacles that's coming up out of the floor. And our hero immediately runs up to this spiky uh, chandelier that was shown earlier in the film. I put it down a note made by the uh, interior designer Chekhov, no doubt. Uh, and he cuts down the chandelier and stabs Dagon in the eye and drives him away as our hero smashes through the, the, the glass ceiling. I like this part because it reminded me of when I was a baby and the nipple thing happened. And <laughs> <laughs> looks off into the sunset uh, having done a hero's work. And the only thing that kind of makes it a Lovecraft ending is that you can still hear the monster roaring in the distance. So you know it's still out there. Ah, my eye! Ah, fuck! <laughs> ah, god damn it! The only thing... The closest to this... It always amuses me whenever a Lovecraft monster is hit with something. Because usually, like, the... Uh, in the story... Uh, in, in the original Lovecraft stories, it's always this nebulous thing that has mm-hmm. a lot of tentacles and mouths and eyes and you, you, it's so horrible you can't even look at it much less fight it but then every once in a while even he puts some sort of physical fight in there yeah. where the end of call of cthulhu actually ends with someone ramming a ship prince eric into into uh, ursula style into cthulhu stabbing him 
and driving him away. And that just is so bizarre to me that these supposedly unknowable horrors can just be punched out. Yeah. So, like, again, Evil Dead 2, the evil uh, extra-dimensional monster from the Necronomicon, comes in their windows, turns Ash's hair white, and then he stabs it in the eyeball with a chainsaw. <laughs> That's so... It seems so antithetical to the entire idea of yeah. Lovecraftian horror. But you need a way out. They can't just come to an accord. Right. And every story can't end with, did you know that my favorite color was blue? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Sometimes you need to have a, a better ending than that. Not a better ending, but a, a happier ending. Yeah. Especially in an anthology where, where we can't end the world at the end of every single segment. That would have been interesting. That would have been interesting if the if the Necronomicon was just like, here are the ways the world will end, you choose. Yeah. Choose the form of your destructor. Another movie with Lovecraftian themes, Ghostbusters. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You can make that case, I guess. <laughs> I do make that case. I guess Zool is sort of a Lovecraftian entity. And the fact that the, the building was designed by an insane person whose architecture was meant to focus cosmic forces from other dimensions. I wish Insanity were more like in movies instead of just like <laughs> uh, crushingly bleak and uh, depressing. It's just... In movies, when you're insane, you get a special gift. You do tons you of shit. You get abilities. a lot done. When you're an aut autistic kid in a movie, you can understand predator science yeah. and stuff. When you're in, when you have mental instability in real life, you're just really sad all yeah. the time. Or sometimes you think you're someone else, and your yeah. loved ones are really sad and can't talk to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> movies, movies about mental illnesses are at once both really empowering and also super regressive. Yes. <laughs> and they're not helpful at all. But anyway, uh, again, cut back to Lovecraft. He's sitting there being like, wow, what a great story. <laughs> Another door opens in the safe. Some cold air comes out and he's like, wow, so cold. And look, here's a story about being cold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they're going for in the library segments. Yeah. I, it's so weird. I have no clue. And not in a good way. It's just like a half... It's half-baked weird. It's yeah. Not, it's just like, things are happening. Sure, why not? Uh, it. I will say, my favorite moment in this movie, and not for good reasons, but my favorite moment in this movie does happen during the final library segment, but we will get to that. So, this next segment is called The Cold. It's based on the story Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft, it is the most accurate to the original story of any of the Lovecraft adaptations in this movie. It is still very different. Um, in the original story, again, racism is much more prevalent because the scientist is a guy named Dr. Munoz, okay. who is a Spanish doctor, who Lovecraft remarks on that even though he's Spanish, he has remarkable breeding. Great. Very into eugenics was our Lovecraft. Yeah. On top of all of his other marvelous attributes, it he live. It's it's a story set in a cramped New York apartment. Again, calling back to his his harrowing time living among the 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 the, the other races. This episode was previously adapted into an episode of Night Gallery, Rod Serling's follow up to The Twilight Zone, in which they changed the main character from a Lovecraft analog into a woman and made it a love story between her and Dr. Munoz. And essentially the only horror of the story is that Dr. M in the original story and in the Night Gallery episodes, that Dr. Munoz is trying to keep himself young 
by freezing himself. Basically, a more awake version of cry cryogenic freezing. Yeah. And at the end of the story, it's revealed that he actually did die ages ago and has just been staving off the death with the, fro with the freezing technology. And then at the end of the story, his air conditioner unit breaks down and he decomposes. That's the entire story. Someone apparently saw that Night Gallery episode before writing this one because the main character is again a woman and again it's a love story between her and Dr. Madden this time. Mm -hmm. John Madden. Jo Dr. John Madden. Boom! You <laughs> <laughs> see, some football players like to put super glue on their gloves. Based on what, John Madden? It's a great John Madden <laughs> I know I have no room to talk when it comes to impressions, but that is fucking fantastic. Is Frank Caliendo in here? But yeah, so um, I don't think they changed it to Dr. Madden because they were afraid of being racist. I think it's just because they had the ability to cast David, David Warner, Warner in something. David Warner is one of my favorite actors of all time. Well, uh, maybe because it's, he's in 1,000 things. He's in everything. Yeah, and Including he, Twin Peaks. Yes, and he's actually one of the worst parts of Twin Peaks. Yeah. He's part of that uh, part of that second season lull. He's part of this, the the big lull in the middle of the second season. I I oh man, I love David Warner, so I want to love every David Warner performance. Yeah, but yeah, he's in everything, and they're not all winners. And unfortunately, Twin Peaks, not yeah. a winner, not a winner. Uh, but uh, he did. If you want to. <laughs> If you want to hear a performance that David Warner is legitimately proud of, watch the show Freakazoid, where he plays the character of the Lobe, which is apparently one of his favorite performances he's ever given. Awesome. And he gets really excited whenever fans bring it up to him at conventions, because no one ever does. <laughs> but he got to sing a cover of um, Hello Dolly, called Hello Lobe. <laughs> oh, Bonjour Lobe, sorry, in that show, and that is his favorite thing that he's ever done. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, David Warner is in this. I think he does a pretty good job. He's probably my favorite actor in the whole thing. Yeah, uh, he's he's a very solid character actor, and he does what he does well, which is basically playing characters that could be unlikable and adding pathos as mm. much pathos as possible. Most people actually, most people probably know him. I should say is playing the butler, the evil butler in Titanic. I think that's what most people know him from. Probably, uh, and that's pretty much every. Most of his parts are playing evil butlers in movies like Titanic. Like he's that's that's him. Um, but yeah. Uh, so in this, a slimy reporter comes to this woman's house and says there have been a series of killings, and I think you're involved, which is why I came here alone with no backup. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing to do when you when there is a uh, when someone you you suspect someone of being a murderer is going like. I think it's you. <laughs> Let's go to a secluded location together. Let's talk about it. <laughs> and you immediately know, well, he's dead. Yeah. Like, like they, it treats it like a big twist, and yeah. it's, it's just not. Uh, he's he's immediately dead. Uh, but so she decides to tell him the story of what led to these murders, and she tells the stories if it happened to her mother. But again, we immediately know. Yeah. Even even if you haven't read Cool Air, I think you already figure out all of the twists within the first five seconds of yeah. watching this segment. This is not this director's best work. Again, this is the director of the Gamera trilogy, which I keep recommending to people. So the narrator, whose name was Emily, I want to say? I believe it's Emily. It's Emily. Emily 
Uh, again, apparently they couldn't afford uh, hotel sets in this movie, so she rents a room in a mansion. Oh, I just assumed it was like a uh, boarding house. Yeah, I, I, I think that was what they were trying to imply, but I didn't, I didn't buy it. Because boarding houses, at least as far as I'm aware, don't usually look like this. I've never been in one. Neither have I, so maybe we both need to shut up. But anyway, uh, she's in this she's in this mansion renting a room from this older woman. Uh, I forgot to put down any of these characters' names other than Dr. Madden. The woman, the main woman is Emily. Dr. Madden's assistant is Lena. Lena, that's right. The uh, Lena reporter owns the house. is Dale Porkel. Ugh, whatever. But yeah, Lena owns the house... And she gives, and she rents out rooms to both Emily and to Doctor Madden. Uh, Doctor Madden, she says, don't ever uh, annoy Doctor Madden. And he lives in this room full that that he keeps very, very cold. And he's played by David Warner. Emily gets in the shower in a scene that definitely, definitely advances the plot, and in no way is there for titillation. Absolutely. We see that she has bruises on her, and then her stepfather enters the scene and says, I've been abusing you. Yes. So again, that shower scene was entirely necessary. Yeah. So, but he says, I want you to suck on my dick because I am abusing you. Yeah. And she says, I do not like to be abused. And he says, too bad because I'm abusing you. Now, do you think this scene would have worked better if instead of the stepfather, it had been Gamera? I... I definitely think it would have been better if it had been Light Yagami. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that is. Light Yagami, main character of Death Note. Okay. <laughs> I definitely think it would have been better if it had been that guy. But, um... So, they they have a little square off, and she runs out into the staircase with her, with her stepfather chasing her. Dr. Madden somehow instinctively knows that something's going on, because he runs out and starts stabbing <laughs> the stepfather... And just takes him out, and uh, the 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 Emily, like any good protagon- female protagonist in a horror movie, faints mm-hmm. and wakes up in Doctor Madden's rooms, where he's taking care of her. And he says, "Your stepfather's gone. He won't be bothering you anymore." Dum dum dum. Oh, I wonder what that means. I wonder if the man stabbing another man <laughs> might have killed that man. But apparently, again, this is supposed to be a surprise. Yes. (laughs) Again, David Warner plays the part with a lot of charm. He tells her, don't be a stranger, and lets her go. We see that he's bleeding some sort of pus, uh, some sort of clear pus from his forehead, which I thought was a decent effect. Yeah. Uh, The special effects in general in the segment, throughout the entire movie, but especially in this segment, I thought were very effective. Yes, at the very end especially. Oh my god, the end. So, um... The new elements of the story that are added in are... It becomes a love triangle between Emily, Dr. Madden, and Lena. Where Lena has been setting up... Has been taking care of Dr. Madden for all these years. She's been in love with him forever. She also runs the boarding house slash mansion. Yes. He appreciates her help, but he says, My heart has been frozen along with the rest of My heart belongs to science. My heart belongs to my work. It's frozen to any other human love. But what he really means is... It's frozen unless you're a young lady. Yes, because immediately after he says that, he immediately starts banging the hell out yeah. of Emily. Which is exactly who I want to bone, the 100-year-old Mr. Freeze. Right, and it's... 
it's made even worse because, okay, there's a bad track record in Hollywood, well, cinema in general, of really old men getting very young women. Yes. But because it's so prevalent, there are ways to shoot it that don't make it seem that bad. Yeah. But having, I'm sorry, David Warner, doughy David Warner <laughs> on top, completely obscuring the lady, the yeah. young lady, and like having close-ups of his like liver spots and stuff while they're having sex, not the most attractive way to frame that. No, but like you were saying, David Warner brings a charisma to it. He does. Where if, yeah. if this had been built up a little longer, mm -hmm. I could buy it. Right. But it's pretty much just like, um, the only thing that gives me a boner is science. Oh, wait. <laughs> and you. <laughs> and also, like, although the story does not intend to do this, we really get the implication that this is a really fucked up relationship because, one, he's going for a younger, more attractive lady than Lena. Who has been sexually abused. Who has been sexually abused her entire life yes. by a father figure. Mm -hmm. And she and he is an older figure of authority yeah. in her life. So, really, it's just him, whether <laughs> the movie intends him to not, he's utilizing her pre-existing trauma. It's a terrible sexual trauma Macbeth where it's like... <laughs> I'm gonna kill this dude so I can take his position. <laughs> oh my god! It's it's the Bathsheba story from the King, from King David. It is. Oh my god! <laughs> I instead of but that daddy, instead of that daddy fucking this girl, this daddy's gonna fuck that girl. Yeah. Oh my god! King David's the worst. <laughs> He's it's one of the worst things. That anyone described as a good person in the Bible has ever done. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's King David's good. track record in general is pretty fucking sketchy. What other bad stuff did he do? I mean, collecting a thousand Philistine foreskins. <laughs> Not. I mean, sure, at the time, like that's great. In retrospect, kind of grody. It is kind of grody. Weren't they invading at the time? Yeah, but Israel? still, like, so I don't know. Like, I'm gonna cut off your foreskin. Uh, he also had a habit of just like. Going total war on his enemies and killing he did. women, he was, children, horses. He was what uh, biblical scholars call a war consigliere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, so... Uh, it's revealed that, yes, David Warner, Dr. Madden, the guy stabbing her stepfather, did in fact kill her stepfather. Yeah. And he needs to kill people in order to take their spinal fluid, which is somehow involved in the potion or whatever that he found in the Necronomicon to keep him alive. Mm -hmm. It's not just cold air, it's also spinal fluid. Yeah. This idea was also taken from this movie and used in another adaptation of the same story, this time feature length, called Chill, which is a 2007 slasher oh. movie. It sounds like early 2000s snowboarding movie. It, it does. It does sound like an early snow. An early 2000s snowboarding movie. Or a snowboarding movie made at any time. Really. True. Snowboarding movies are always pretty... They're timeless, really. <laughs> They're timeless, exactly. So yeah, he kills people and steals their spinal fluid. It was a kind of a cool either directing or acting choice that even though we can assume the, the stepfather is dead, when she comes in on them taking his spinal fluid... And yes, Dr. Madden tells her all of the stuff before the end twist reveal. He tells mm -hmm. her everything. 
except for the fact that he's always been dead. He just says, I need to use the cold to stay alive, I need the spinal fluid, all this stuff. But she comes in on him right before he tells her, and sees her father, her stepfather lying there, and as they're extracting the fluid with their instruments, the body is jerking around violently, which I thought was a neat touch. Yeah. Uh, it adds an extra level of ugh, yeah to the uh, proceedings. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote down when I was describing the love triangle. I just found in my notes, Lena is the older woman's name. Yes, Lena's been taking care of Doctor Madden for ages because she wants that icicle dick. Yeah, of course. Um, Madden and the narrator fall for each other because she's hot and he clearly ha- and clearly has daddy issues, and then they end up having sex. And I pointed out, I realized that all of the Previous versions of the story that I'd heard say that whenever he touches someone, they he feels completely cold to the touch. And even mm-hmm. in this movie, they say that he and the flower that he keeps alive with the same technique feel completely cold to the touch. So what must sex feel like? I uh, don't know. That, uh, But she seems into it. She seems into it, <laughs> but God. So Lena comes upon them having sex in the greenhouse, mm-hmm. the refrigerated greenhouse. And picks up a knife, and after Emily is trying to sneak back to her room, she comes at Emily with a knife. Not to kill her, but just threatening yeah. her, holding the knife up, and she says, uh, I'm either going to die for him... Or, it's something like, uh, I'm going to use this knife on either you, or, you me. or me. Yeah, I will either kill... I'm willing to kill for him, I'm willing to die for him. Are you able to say the same? Then she turns the knife towards herself, yes. waiting for Emily to just... Plunge it into her. To just her. plunge it into her. She can't... So we presume that she can't bring herself to enact harm on Emily. Mm-hmm. So she just wants to die to get it over with. And Emily is freaked out by this very normal behavior. Uh, and runs away from the house. She Good apparently choice. She just runs away. She does not... She actually got a job as, as a waitress. Yes. But she does not tell her boss. No. She just, she just leaves town. Which is the real horror of this. Is that... Those other waitresses that work there are going to be left in the weeds without anyone to cover her section. Exactly. Like, there, there's a there's a lunch hour rush that she was supposed to cover, yeah. and now some of those girls are, are not going to be able to attend their piano lessons. Exactly. But anyway, so, apparently she runs away, but then a few months later, she goes to a gynecologist and comes out with her head hanging down. So again, another twist that we're supposed to not be able to guess yet, that we immediately know what's going to happen. Yeah, no, it's very obvious. Mm -hmm. This segment, not so good at hiding twists. Um, She goes back to the house and discovers them trying to kill her boss, who had gone to the house to find out where she was, Mm -hmm. so she could cover those shifts she missed, I assume. Um, And... uh, she distracts him enough that that guy gets away, doesn't he? Or does he get killed? I forget. I can't remember. Doesn't matter. And she's like, no! Lena says, she knows too much. Uh, we can't let her go running around. Before she leaves again, we have to kill her. And Dr. Madden freaks out and says, no! And tosses a bunch of stuff off of a table, as only people in movies do. Exactly. When they're mad. And apparently all these chemicals used to keep him cold are flammable. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and they immediately start a fire. So instead of an air conditioner unit breaking down and, and him slowly disintegrating over the course of the last part of the story, it all happens at once. Yeah. And all of my frustrations with the story at this 
point go out the window for one of the best. It's oh an amazing. My God, <laughs> it's it's a triumph of special effects as this man decomposes. Not just decomposes, is tearing his own rotting flesh oh, off. Oh no! He like tries to reach and grab her hand, grab Emily's hand, but his hand is a gelatinous jellyfish mess. Yeah, he's just he's ripping his own skin off. His skull pops out of his face and is still talking somehow, in like a uh, Return of the Living Dead kind of mo- <laughs> moment. It's just. Oh my god. It's so good. There's green slime, pink slime, red slime, every color of slime pouring out of this guy's body. Oh, and I, I and I was watching this segment and remembering myself as a little child. My dad showed me the Roger Corman film The Terror. Okay. Which is a long, boring, gothic horror film piece. Until the end, Jack Nicholson, a very young Jack Nicholson, discovers that his his beloved won't this beloved woman that he's fallen in love with uh he's actually been dead the entire story and she's oh. been a ghost but he's like oh well one, i've broken the curse by killing boris karloff you must be free now right let's kiss and he kisses and he's like ah and it cuts back to her face and she's melting and it like dissolves into a prop skull with like hair falling off of it and red and pink goo flowing down it and when I was a kid, that moment traumatized the fuck out of me. <laughs> and essentially all it is is like a prop you could pick up at Spirit Halloween today. Yeah. And now I'm watching this and I'm giggling <laughs> like a madman. <laughs> yeah, that's called growing up. <laughs> that yeah, but like it's just there's there's a lot of times where I look at myself and imagine that I haven't changed at all. Like yeah. I, I think of myself as still being like a little kid. I still surround myself with comic book paraphernalia. I'm constant like constantly wearing my Iron Man PJs and watching cartoons. And then I have little moments of growth like that. <laughs> where you realize, oh man, I've changed a lot. I'm an adult now. I'm an adult now. And melting also, people are hilarious. Melting people are now really funny to me. <laughs> and also. I genuinely think if my dad now watched that scene, he would not be able to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you're in Maine, you should uh, put that to the test. Oh, he would not sit down for this movie. <laughs> I could just show him that, that part. Just be like, Dad, I want to... <laughs> so, hey, Dad, remember how you said you'd never watch The Fly again? <laughs> I have something that's almost as bad. <laughs> Remember that bit where the fly spit acid and melted a, a human man's hand off? Watch this bit. It happens to a whole man. <laughs> <laughs> so after that happens, we mm-hmm. jump back to Emily's Oh, no. First, oh. Lena shoots Emily in the back. That's right. And Lena's, and Emily falls back down saying, No, I'm pregnant! <laughs> And Lena's like, oh, shit. Oh, damn. <laughs> Murder's one thing, abortion is another. Yeah. Well, <laughs> segment three, it's coming. Uh, Brian Usna. So, uh, cut back to the present day. Well, present is relative in this movie's terms. Yeah. But, yeah, to the to the, the wraparound segment within the wraparound segment. And the lady says... You're right, reporter. I'm actually my mother. I'm I'm Emily. I'm me. Emily. And we're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I, the reporter does some great uh, drugged acting. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he's phenomenal. He's like, you drugged my tea. I don't know where I've seen this actor before. I have seen him in other things, and he delivers a wonderfully hammy performance. He knows that there's nothing to this script and the part he's been given, so he just kind of like no sells the entire performance, and it's yeah. pretty great. I was looking up. He was in Django Unchained as some small part. Okay. He was in the It miniseries. That's as Eddie right. Kasbrack. That's right. He was. I remember him being pretty good in that. Yeah. There. I, I'm in general not a fan of any of the adult versions of the characters in the It miniseries. Yeah. But I remember him being not so bad. From what I barely remember of that movie, you're correct. Right. Not nearly as good as Tim Curry, but... No. Uh, and it turns out she's been kept alive with the same ice stuff and the same spinal fluid. Yeah. And she has a baby, in, and the baby inside of her is still dead. Yes. But they're hoping someday, with enough cold and enough spinal fluid, they can bring it back. Which is a wonderfully disturbing thing. It is. That the movie does not really pull off. It Yeah, it should be much more of a shocking conclusion than it is. But it's sort of... And it's a great expansion on the end of the original story, yeah. which you don't usually see in these things. I don't know what could have been done to make it land better. Maybe I don't know. The, maybe the cinematography or the acting, but it's such a disturbing concept. Yeah. Have, being forced to carry this baby for the rest of your unnatural life. Yes. But it just, I wish it worked better. The disturbing aspects of immortality in general is something that could be explored more. Because immortality, the more you think about it, the more disturbing it becomes. Yeah. It's a very odd thing that has been looked up to as a good thing way too yeah. much. <laughs> My, the thing that always stresses me out about immortality is it used to be a thing where it's like, okay, just move to another town. Now it's like, fuck, how am I going to deal with the logistics of this? I... Someone's going to notice that I'm 800 years old and I'm still using the same social security card. I mean, even in... in uh, It didn't strike me as being terribly realistic even in the 80s in the movie The Highlander. Yeah. Where it's revealed that he's just been taking the names and identities of a bunch of stillborn babies over time. It used to be a lot easier to do that. That's how a lot of people would uh, forge identities. Sure. But, like, they only have to do, like, a a couple days worth of research to find out that he's a complete fraud. True, but most people, if especially back then, before everything was on computers, like right. you could go to some place where, oh, their, their records got lost in a flood or something, and be like, yeah, I'm Carl Dead Baby. Right. And they'd be like, sure, sounds legit. Sure. Here's a, here's a birth certificate, here's a soch. Right. But all I'm saying is like, even as of the 80s, when technology was not even as good as it is now, yeah. we'd already begun to get to a point where the immortals couldn't hide. Yeah. So it's it's tough out there for a, a demigod, I guess, is what yeah. we're saying. Support to your local demigod youth center today. So yeah, cut back to Lovecraft, staring at an abstract picture of a butthole. Yep. The monks have started to figure out where he is, but he doesn't know that. Because he's too busy reading some other story, another door opens in the safe, and we cut back to another story. Now, this next story is probably my favorite of the three. It's definitely my favorite. The only competition is that first one with that wonderful sea monster, man, pirate. 
I like the Sea Monster Man, Pirate, and the Tentacle Finger Puppet in the first one, and I really like David Warner's performance in the second one yeah. and his melting. But the third one, golly gee willikers. It's, and for the most, for most of this segment, it really didn't do anything for me. I was like, this doesn't feel like Lovecraft, this barely feels like horror, this feels very, very run-of-the-mill, very nothing special. But then it became the most Lovecraft out of all of them, Mm -hmm. and became genuinely disturbing. It definitely feels closest to, again, towards the end. It feels the closest to a Lovecraft idea, complete with like going through ancient ruins and finding these things of, and the idea that part of the horror that comes from Lovecraft stories is not is 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 predicated on his worldview not only his racism but the fact that he comes from an old white family that is therefore entrenched in christian religious values Mm -hmm. so a lot of the horror uh on display in his stories is not only based around racism but it's also based around the idea that maybe there is no god yeah or even worse there is a god but he doesn't care about you yes and he's not even a he or a she or an it it's some it's something else it's something with a lot of eyes and mouths and maybe it just shat out a planet once yeah and we happen to live here but god doesn't love you yeah god doesn't know you god doesn't care so you could live and die and nothing will ever matter because the only thing that could ever conceivably matter is what that thing does, and that thing doesn't even care what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a truly horrifying theological idea. Yeah. Um, and this story gets the closest to that. Yes. I, I don't... I, I... It doesn't go there, but it gets closest. Yes. By... Unfortunately, it gets there by deliberately having one of the characters say that. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, so this story is based on the story Whispers in the Darkness. The original story Whispers in the Darkness is about a professor at Miskatonic University who's a pen pal with a farmer who's afraid of aliens. Then he goes to visit the farmer, and the farmer says, Oh, I'm not afraid of aliens anymore. And then he finds out that the farmer's <laughs> brain has been stolen. Aliens are afraid of me. Where do they get a load of me? I'm here to harvest sorghum and kill aliens, and I've already <laughs> harvested all the sorghum. And he realizes, oh, aliens have taken over my friend, and he goes home and tells the authorities, hey, aliens took over my friend, and the authorities blow up his friend. <laughs> sort of similar to the story uh, The Color Out of Space. The Color Out of Space, sort of similar to Shadows Over Innsmouth. It's, he was a formula writer. Yeah. <laughs> what can I say? Spooky things happen on a farm. Get some people to go deal with it. Oh no, Will Wheaton's in trouble. <laughs> oh. <laughs> God forbid. That's a reference to a movie, The Curse, which is another adaptation of The Color Out of Space. In this version of the story, we cut to two cops in Philly driving around, passing a very grumpy David Lynch on their <laughs> way to chase down some sort of suspect. Apparently, the only thing the suspect didn't, did was not pull over. Yeah, they they think he might be a the serial killer who's been serial killing okay. in the area. Okay. I believe that was the. Is that what they said? Because this this segment again directed by Brian Usna. Brian Usna, above all else, believes in excess. <laughs> so this 
segment more than any other segment in this uh, film moves at a breakneck speed. Yes. Things just happen real fast. And so, yeah, they're driving along, and as they're driving, apparently these two cops are not only partners, but they are partners. Yes. In a sexual sense. And they are arguing about pregnancy that the female officer has. The female officer is pregnant, and Mm -hmm. she is not dealing with it well. And she is being very reckless because of that. Yes. And uh, her name is... Sarah. Sarah, that's right. And the guy's name is Paul. And Paul is played by Oba Babatunde. What a wonderful name. It's a beautiful name. I love it. Say it to me one more time. Oba Babatunde. Oba Babatunde. Oba? Oba? Babatunde. Babatunde. Oba Babatunde. Oh uh, my god, I I want to name my child that. It's so good. <laughs> and Oba Babatunde is another guy who has been in a ton of stuff. He's a great character actor. I thought I recognized him from something. Oh, I'm sure you've recognized him from many things. I mostly know him and where... The reason I know how to pronounce his name yeah. is because he has a small role in the wonderful film Black Dynamite. And in the commentary, mm. in the commentary they mention Oba Babatunde. Right. Every time you say Oba Babatunde, I, I feel like we're about to break into song. It's just a, It's such a melodic name. My god. <laughs> anyway, um <laughs> stop just preening over this guy's name. Um, and it, it it also makes me think of the great actor slash character from The Good Place, uh, Bamba John Bamba. Oh, yeah! Oh, man. Yeah, that is that is also great. But, okay, so um, the actress playing Sarah does a pretty good job in this. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, she, so, they, so they're reckless driving and arguing about this stuff, and they get into a car accident. The car gets flipped, and they're both uh, unconscious for a few seconds. And as Sarah comes to, she sees Paul being dragged away by someone wearing red rubber boots. She's a little bit out of it, but she gets herself out of the car and starts trying to find who took Paul and where to. She follows the trail of Paul's blood to a warehouse where she finds a guy who appears to be homeless, but he says that he owns the building. Mm -hmm. She has no reason not to believe him, so we, we go with that. And his name is Harold. And he talks about, she, she, he says that the crook she's looking for is someone named the butcher, butcher. who takes people. He's never taken a cop before. He's, and that he lives in this building that he owns. The crime that he's most worried about is that the butcher owes him rent. Yeah, like a typical landlord. Like a typical landlord. And that right, fellow kids? Uh, <laughs> they also run into Harold's friend, Daisy. Mm-hmm. Sarah assumes that they are married. Daisy tells her that they are not married. They only met a few weeks ago. But she continues to call them a married couple regardless yeah. for some reason. And Harold will later say that, of course they're married. Right. It, Yeah, it becomes very... Which, if this were a full-length movie yeah. and did not move at such a brisk pace, that sort of... Double talk? Double talk would be could be very unsettling and disturbing as you try to wrap your mind around, well... These people are both acting very odd, and they're saying contradictory things. Yes. What is going on? I would like that <clears throat> sort of a thing. Kind of like we, we recently watched uh, the movie The Wicker Man. Yes. And there's a lot of that sort of like, oh, sh- we've never heard of this girl. I just saw a picture of her. Oh, that, that girl. girl. Right. Well, she, you know, she moved away, or wh- yeah. whatever they say, like... That, that kind of stuff is unsettling, and, frust- and the frustration of the officer in trying to get 
to this guy that we know that she cares about, Paul. Yes, I, I completely agree. Unfortunately, because this segment moves so quickly, we go from, oh, these are some wacky characters, to they're up to some shit. Yeah. So quickly, we don't get a chance to appreciate that element of the story. We should also note that the true horror of this for H.P. Lovecraft would have been that Paul is black. Oh, absolutely. And there is going to be a biracial child. And that he trial. laid with a white woman. Yes. Uh, that would have been absolutely horrifying to mm. him. I have no doubt that had he seen it, I don't know if he did, Birth of a Nation would have been one of his favorite movies. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> absolutely. So Daisy is blind, mm. and she smells Sarah. and Her says pregnancy. She, she smells pretty, and then she also smells the pregnancy. She says, you're pregnant. I've always wanted to be pregnant. They, they they take Sarah back to their little place where they live inside this warehouse full of office equipment. And uh, they have a copy of the Necronomicon on their bookshelf. Yep. Which is interesting because this is the only segment where we see the Necronomicon and we know what it is, but the point of view character does not. Yes. Sarah has no reason to know what the Necronomicon is. She's just a cop. Like, why would she know that shit? Every other story we've seen has had someone explain to the character as they're looking at the Necronomicon, this is the Necronomicon. But Sarah has no idea, so so we get to know that she's fucked, because only bad people have the Necronomicon. Yeah. We get to know that she's fucked way before she finds out that she's fucked. So they say, the butcher's been getting out again, and he, he gets out somehow, let's take you down to where the butcher goes. And there's this tunnel under the building which leads down into these ruins covered in all of these carvings, which I feel like whoever did the production design in this segment, I don't know if it was the same as the other segments, but they did a better job with the runes here, making it actually look like an ancient culture yeah. than the Stargate runes earlier in the film. And there's some statuary that helps, yes. helps boost that effect. And this is a big part of early Lovecraft stories especially is an explorer finding ancient ruins and carvings that tell a story of an ancient people that usually the, the, the trope in Lovecraft is he, the person looks at them and says, oh, this must be things from their mythology mm -hmm. and then he finds out it's real. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. The fish people are real. It's Other religions have validity? What? Anyway, uh, uh, just before they're going down there, Daisy tells Sarah that the Butcher is an alien who's been on Earth since before the dinosaurs, which is another very Lovecraftian idea. Yes. Uh, Robert E. Howard actually intentionally tied his work in with Lovecraft's work because they were such great friends and said that his Conan stories took place during the Hyborian Age, which is an age on Earth from before modern recorded history. So that would have been before the dinosaurs. So mm -hmm. maybe the alien comes from the Hyborian Age, maybe even earlier. Maybe. As Harold takes, leads Sarah down into these catacombs, he says, in the old times, things were simpler. Life which... moved a little bit slower before the Great Flood. <laughs> <laughs> he says, there were things you could really believe in back then. Which is another element of Lovecraft stories, is that when you talk to God, the Christian God, you don't always know if you're hearing anything back mm -hmm. because everything's very nebulous. But when a worshiper of Cthulhu or Dagon worships their god, they hear back immediately. Yes. The words they hear back scramble their brains, <laughs> turn their bodies into fish people and their hair white, 
but they do hear back. Belief is a heavy burden to bear. It is. <laughs> and so he, he's, and then he's, uh, Sarah says, uh, your wife tells me that the butcher is an alien. And Harold says, no, the butcher's not an alien. He just works with the aliens. And that the butcher has decided, much like the people on these carvings, that God's a goner. And, uh, we, and all these people in the carvings were butchers in their own way. And then we see that he puts on some red boots over his normal shoes, and she realizes that he's the one who dragged Paul away. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a thing where, again, if there had been more time, if yeah. it wasn't so overt that these people are nutty, yeah. if, it, if there had been a slower build, that reveal could have been great. Mm-hmm. But as it is, like we know that they're... That these people are bad. Yeah. So it's like, obviously. Right. Even if I didn't know it, I'm not surprised. I, I'd say the, the reveal is better with Daisy, because the actress playing Daisy does a great... Well, although she's still creepy, because the context that she's in, mm-hmm. and the sniffing is bizarre. Yeah. She, the actress does a good job of playing sincerity in that she plays a sincere old woman who's just sort of a little bit batty yeah. and doesn't know what's going on very well. So when she suddenly, in the scene where she's got Harold at gunpoint, Sarah has, she comes up behind Sarah, hits her. And here's where... Sarah says something about, like, please God and something. And Daisy shouts in a great delivery, wonderful delivery, There is no God! <laughs> and throws her down this pit into a pile of human remains and this is where the segment gets amazing. Yes. This is where it goes up to 11. This is where it gets so fucking metal. Her trek through this bog of dead bodies looks so good. Oh my god. It's so... It's actual hell. Yes. She's going through hell. Which there was a really... I, I forgot to mention there was a really bad line earlier... Where they're going through the ruins and they're and she's like, "What is this place?" Like, you believe in heaven? Well, you believe in hell. <laughs> it was like that's that was stupid on the nose. But now he, they're really in hell. Yes, <laughs> they're really in hell, and it's so horrifying and so deeply wrong, and the body parts look so good. They're great. They're so gooey and gross, and she climbs on top of this altar. In the middle, it's the only place where there isn't human flotsam or jetsam. She climbs on top of this carved-up altar. looks kind of like the cover of the Necronomicon, actually. I don't know if that was intentional. Probably. Probably. And she starts crying and saying, Please, please, no, I'll have the baby. Which I thought was such a wonderful moment. Because because of her constant references to God Mm -hmm. in the past... And also we know that it, she grew up in America. Everyone in America, well, most people in America, at least white people in America, have at least some background in Christianity. Whether they even come from a religious family, it's so ingrained in our culture. Just the fact that I say Christmas and everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. That atheists, the term atheists and foxholes comes from people from America being put in in extreme situations and suddenly developing faith in God yeah. out of panic because of coming so close to death and realizing that they must have there must be something that I'm going for and going to after this and if I am 
what is it going to be? So she's made references to God earlier, but she's also said stuff about like not necessarily believing in heaven or hell. But stuck in the situation, she can't help but look back over the conversations that she's had and the incredible pressure that our society puts on women yeah. um, to, to feel like monsters. When yeah, they, the they, huge they, stigma about abortion. The huge stigma about abortion. And she's left and she's left there and thinking, is there any kind of bargaining I can do to get it? And mm-hmm. she starts screaming, I'll have the baby, as if that has anything to do with the situation she's in. But I thought that was such a psychologically real, horrifying moment. It yeah. almost makes you forget that the segment is def- it was written by a man. <laughs> 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 it was definitely written by a man. Oh, absolutely. And it gets a little bit less progressive after that suddenly things start flying around that look kind of like the Minox from Empire Strikes Back. Uh, she hears Paul's voice calling her. And in one of the only things that is kind of like something from the original story, she looks over. Paul's there. Oh, thank God it's Paul. Yeah. Oh, no! No, it's not. It's, it's a big old meat suit made yeah. of Paul. <laughs> the back of Paul's head mm-hmm. is entirely scooped out. Yep. And there is a fantastic shot where you're looking from behind Paul mm-hmm. into this scooped out head and you see light through his mouth. Like it's oh, God. so it's one of the best horror shots I've ever seen. It is one of the best puppets yeah. I've ever seen in a horror movie. Because there's something about like I think we we're both the those kinds of film nerds that talk about practical effects and how much we miss them and yes. stuff like that. But let's be real. There are a lot of practical effects that suck. And there, there are. are a lot of times, even movies with good practical effects, where the fake corpses just don't come up to snuff. This is one of the best fake corpses it's, I've ever seen. It's incredible. It's so good. Uh, Here's what I always think about. Yeah. When they make an effect like that, Yeah. if I were in that movie, and it was a puppet of me, I would definitely ask if I could have it. Yes, 100%. Because what the fuck else are they going to use it for? <laughs> it's not like Obavabatunde was going to be in another movie where he got fucking hollowed out. And maybe he's not the same type of pervert that we are, where he'd be like, <laughs> maybe, let me get maybe that. Maybe he doesn't want a reminder of his mortality sitting around his house. Yeah, but I always think about that. I'd be like, I would want it. Absolutely. I would. I would. I would definitely... I would at least definitely take a selfie with my own corpse. Yeah. There's at that at the very least I would definitely do that. And in a really creative twist on the original story, instead of his brain being scooped out and put in a jar as it was in the original story, it's instead been incorporated into the body of one of the aliens. Yes. The aliens have these transparent goo sacs in their stomachs. And his brain and eye stems are just floating in it. Which is another incredible, incredible, disturbing effect. What What kind of mind thinks of that? It's so great. Yeah. It's so, I, I know normally people say that in a way of being like, fuck you, you creep. How dare you think of something like that? Thank God for people who think this way. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and then, and and then the, get Tom Savini and people who work for him to make this shit. And oh my God, it's The wonderful. creature crawls out of Paul and it's still speaking with his voice like in what is through a vagina mouth yeah through what's uh, the neck analog there's a little vaginal like opening 
Yes. That's his voice is still coming through it. And it's just saying, it's still me. It's still me. He talks about how they need us to breed. And it's amazingly disturbing and gnarly. And it's just this perfect storm of effect and script. And oh, my God. Again, if this had been a longer movie with better pacing. I do kind of wish this third segment had been the entire movie. Yeah. Because it's the most original thing. Like I said. Cool Air, aside from the effects at the end and maybe David Warner's performance, which, whatever. He, David Warner's given other good performances. Yeah, you can see him in a thousand other you things. You can see him in a thousand other things. The middle segment is way worse than the Night Gallery episode. Yeah. Uh, and Which I do recommend that Night Gallery episode to people. That's, that's a great episode. And the first segment was just kind of weaker Dagon. Aside from the fish pirate, who I want an entire movie about yeah. the fish pirate going on adventures, the third segment... I think they made that movie. It's called Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Yes! With with Davy Bill, Jones. Yeah. Bill Nye's fantastic performance as Davy Jones. But yes, um, the third the third segment is the most original, most Lovecrafty bit. And I, I... Yeah, I would love to see a whole movie just based around that segment. I don't think this Brian Usnoff guy would be the best choice to make this a really effective like long form yeah. piece no he's 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 not the best director in the world in fact i would say he's kind of bad but like yeah. he 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 there's some pretty great ideas in this segment oh absolutely and if yeah if you if you were to team up with someone again like Stuart gordon or someone else to like help develop his ideas a little bit better and then like take over the reins of directing it's an obvious choice but cronenberg Oh my could god! Do a yes. Fucking amazing job with this. I mean, sometimes obvious choices are obvious because they're the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> has when was the last time Cronenberg is actually did a body horror? I know he's kind of moved away from that genre. I have no clue. Probably Existence. Okay. When was when did that come out? I think that was early two thousands. It was either oh, okay. early two thousands more or recent than I thought. Mid nineties. The last David Cronenberg film I remember hearing about was that film about Robert Pattinson sitting in the back of a limo for. Yeah, Cosmopolis. Minutes. Yeah. Uh, Existence was 1999. Okay, okay. It's a movie we might also cover on this sometime. I know David Cronenberg has made a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. I just recently watched The Dead Zone, which was way more normal than I was expecting from yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, but it was not his story, so... True. Anyway, um, so yeah, so all of this gnarly shit is happening. Yeah, he, Paul tells Sarah they need us to breed, which is just... A horrifying thing to say to a person. Sarah maybe passes out. She's surrounded by aliens, and she passes out. She wakes up on a slab surrounded by Daisy and Harold, and Daisy is revealed to be another meat suit like yep. Paul is. The turban on the back of her head, we assume, is covering another scoop, mm-hmm. and she has empty eye sockets like he does. Yep. But uh, the alien is still inside her body, and a weird buzzsaw protrusion comes out, and Harold say, it's the funniest thing. The aliens have a real sweet tooth for bone marrow. <laughs> Which I don't know if that's supposed to connect it to cool air. I don't what. know. I'm sorry, the cold? Cool air is a better title. Um, they start cutting into her bones, and then she passes out again, and this time wakes up in right. a hospital bed. And there's a misdirect here. It says... They say the whole story was a dream. She was con- yep. recontextualizing things. Harold is dressed as a doctor. She recognizes Daisy as her mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, they discuss 
the fact that she was planning on aborting her child and that she may have lost it in the accident. Harold says that the dream was just recontextualizing elements of what was going on to her that she found too horrible. Yes. Which I found to be a double-edged explanation for this entire scene. Because it's a revealed... Spoilers. It's revealed that this is actually the dream and she's yeah. really in the cave. Um, which, so I was imagining that she's recontextualizing what was actually happening to her into this vision yeah. to deal with the horrible things happening to her. Which normally I would not be super fond of this kind of fake out. Yeah. Uh, but the reveal that... When Daisy reveals that... She she says something like, Your baby's still alive. Yeah, don't don't wake the baby. And she says, You said my baby was dead. And she said... Oh no, you just don't have it anymore. You weren't a fit mother. And she opens her shirt. And it's an alien, the alien body with the vagina mouth and everything, and the, the goose sack. And inside a, the goose sack is, is a, that baby! Yep. She's got the baby in her! Wonderful, creepy-ass effect. Oh my god. And I don't know what the message of this is. Because again, they have another conversation about the ethics of abortion. Where they talk about... The fact that it's her body, her choice, and they they do not negate that. They say, yes, it is your body, your choice, but the baby has a body and a choice, too. But Well, the baby has a life, too, but it doesn't get to make a choice. You get to make a choice for it. Uh, and then she's like, yes, I'm sorry, Mom. Which seems to be an admission, but yeah. I don't know. But then they pull back the blanket and they've cut off all of her limbs and they're drinking her fucking bone marrow and suddenly there's a baby inside of a goose sack. So I don't know what I'm supposed to get away from this. And they, Is this pro-life? Pro-choice? I don't know. I think it's pro-goo. The whole movie is just <laughs> is just to get kids going out there and buying goo. And the lady was like, uh, I... Oh, she earlier said, I always wanted a baby and now she yeah. has one. It's a happy ending. In her goose sack. Oh my god. And, like, oh, man. And it's, it's kind of like if Violence Voyager ended way worse. Yes. Because, like, I, I just don't know... Much like in Violence Voyager, I don't know how any of this shit works. I don't know... It's not important. It's not important. It, the point is, this is horrible. Yes. There's one last twist which confused the hell out of me. I think it was supposed to be, like, a tiny victory for the main character where... Harold is leaving the aliens behind. I guess Harold is the only one who's not an alien here. Mm -hmm. He's probably the butcher and that he works with the aliens, like he said. He brings, he brings them bodies. brings them bodies to, to feast on and to breed with and to convert into them somehow. But uh, he says, where are the keys to my car? And is walking off. And then shows that Sarah's holding the keys and she drops them. And she like half smiles a little bit as she's being fed on. And I was like... He's just going to pick those up, right? Yeah, I guess... <laughs> I think the implication was that doing so would be dangerous to him. Like, he'd be... He'd get caught by the monsters himself. But the monsters seem pretty chill with him just being alive. Yeah. I, I don't know what that was supposed to be about. It's... I, I think they just needed an ending. Sure. Sometimes you just got to end something. Yeah. I've been dealing with the same outline of the same script I've been trying to write for a while. And the main problem is I can't think of a good ending... So instead... Never stop Stephen King. <laughs> so what I'm going to do instead is I'm just going to have one of the characters grab someone's keys and drop them. Do it. And that's going to be the end of the script. And I'm going to send it around to other people and have them write a better ending <laughs> for me. But anyway. We go back to Lovecraft time in the library. 
we go back to Lovecraft Time in the Library. So that was my favorite overall segment. Yes. My favorite moment in the film, for a very ironic reason, is coming up here. So Lovecraft is distracted from his reading because the monks have found him. Mm -hmm. And they're standing outside the door. And instead of being really mean about it, they're actually being fairly reasonable. They're just yeah. like, come on, Lovecraft, put the book back, just come back, back out man. here, open the door. Not he took angry. my keys. I'm not angry, I'm just very disappointed. <laughs> and Lovecraft is like, I wanna, but dropped I dropped my keys in the water. And the monk is like, what? Son of a bitch. You son of a bitch. Monk freaks out, and suddenly tentacles burst out of the water and wrap mm -hmm. around Lovecraft's legs. And apparently Dagon from the first segment is back. Yeah. And he starts spewing green slime onto Lovecraft. <laughs> For no reason. <laughs> At the same time, the final door is opening in the in the in the safe, and light is shooting out of it. And the monk is like, oh no. But don't worry, because the monk has secretly been plastic man the entire yeah, time. He, he squeezes himself through the bars in a wonderful effect. It was a wonderful effect, much like all the other effects in this movie. Mm -hmm. He comes in. And then he attacks Lovecraft, saying, What have you done? Oh, Lovecraft has a sword cane. Yes. Which is pretty badass. Sword it canes is. are awesome. They are. And he stabs Dagon. Dagon can't catch a break today. No. Dagon keeps getting stabbed. He stabs Dagon, and Dagon once again... My like, one weakness! <laughs> Pointy things! <laughs> Do you think Dagon like gets hooked by fishing hooks a lot? So he stabs Dagon. Dagon goes away. The monk comes up. Hamming it up to a thousand percent is like, you don't know what you've done. And I wish I could show you the the physical motions he's doing. When he's do he's like he's like trying to push something together. I don't know. It's it's just a weird motion. And he starts attacking Lovecraft. And my favorite moment in the movie, Lovecraft fights back against him by peeling the skin off of his head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I love it because it's clear that someone was like, we gotta put more effects into this last bit because this is the climax of the movie. Yeah. What are we gonna do? Doesn't matter if it makes sense. <laughs> Have him peel the guy's head. Just peel it off like his head was a fucking clementine. <laughs> the, the skull underneath... The meat-covered skull underneath the skin is not even realistic at all. It's no. like actually one of the worst effects in the movie. Yeah, after after that last segment... Yeah, especially and, after that last segment. And after the melting in the middle segment... Yes. This is, not, this is not a grand finale. It's awful, but as someone who enjoys trash cinema, this made me laugh yeah. a lot. So he, he peels the he the skin off of the guy, which doesn't seem to hurt him at all. He just no. keeps going about his day. And then the portal opens up, and you see what is essentially just any of the Doctor Who intros. Yeah. It's, inside. it's very much a poor man's Stargate sequence from 2001. Yes. that's a, Yeah, with all the colors and stuff. And then a weird meat mouth thing comes flying through it. Mm -hmm. it, kind of, it kind of seems to me if... The Langoliers had been a practical effect. Okay. <laughs> Never seen the Langoliers. Uh, there are a bunch of meatballs that eat up the moments in time that have passed. Oh. Uh, very Lovecraftian concept. Yes. But the TV miniseries version chose to use very early CGI effects for it, and they look like if Pac-Man was made out of shit. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like actual brown shit. 
Uh, if they, they'd done it a practical effect, it'd probably be a weird toothy meat puppet like uh, it is in this. Like in the Red Letter Media motion picture Feeding Frenzy. You would know better than I. But yeah, so they um, he's flying through the portal towards them. The monk tries to feed Lovecraft to it, but Lovecraft sneaks around him, stabs him with a sword, and feeds the monk to the to the meatball, which is apparently all the meatball wanted. The Cosmic Core just needed a light snack. Just needed a light snack, goes right back into the portal, all the doors close, leaving the Necronomicon out, so apparently taking the Necronomicon out of the place was not the problem. Well, it's not a lending library, it's just a research library. Just a research library, but he has it, I guess, because the monk, he doesn't get the keys back. No, because they're at the bottom of the library's ocean. But he gets out somehow... True. We don't see it. We don't see how he gets out, but he gets oh, out. Oh, it was open the entire time! <laughs> oh, I am a silly willy. He gets out, and one of the other monks says, Lovecraft, you don't know what you've done! We don't know what he's done. No. <laughs> and he goes out, and his taxi driver's been waiting, waiting for him the entire time. He's talking to a cop saying, yeah, I work for a weirdo. The cop walks off. He's like, did you get what you wanted? And Lovecraft is covered in slime. And he's saying... I think it found me. And we're like, well, I hope you two have a wonderful life together. <laughs> they get in the car. Jeffrey Combs, and Jeffrey Combs laughs all the way to the bank. <laughs> 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 and goes to voice another damn Transformers cartoon somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that was Necronomicon Book, Book of, of Dead. Dead. Any final thoughts, Brad? No. But no, uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch. There's some great effects. Yeah. As with all anthology movies, it's hit or miss. It's very uneven. Yeah. But uh, it's it's definitely worth a watch if you can track it down. And if you, if you like uh, Brian Usna esque excess, this is not quite as absurd as Faust or the uh, Reanimator sequels. But it, it will it will give you your fix. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye bye.